Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and production in general. And our second hour is usually something we want, we want to spend a little bit more time on, but today, more questions. So if you've got questions, you can throw those questions in. We're taking a light week, um, a heavy week for you who are listening because we need your questions. to. to uh, we will go as long as you ask those questions. So if you stop asking questions, it'll just be a short day. But this is a great panel here, and you'll have a great Great opportunity to get some questions answered if you have them. Uh, you can throw those questions into Makana. Make sure to vote on those questions so that we know which order you'd like us to, what questions are the most important to you. And uh, and then also, if you're not a Makana, of course, you can use uh, askofficehours.global. It's this little QR code right here, askofficehours.global. Uh, you can just ask the question there. You don't need to sign in. You don't need to do anything else. So it'll just pop up on your phone or your computer. And you can throw those questions in, and then we will feed those into the show. Let's go ahead and jump into the first question. Uh, Bill, what do we have? Our first one comes from Mitchell Hill here on the panel from Wilmington, Delaware. Any Black Friday deals that got your attention for today? Go ahead, Mitch. Black Friday is a great time to shop for stuff. Um, I, I see the best and deepest deals on uh, software plugins or services that I use in After Effects. Like uh, Boris will have a deal like 25, 30, 50 percent off. Um, it's just very convenient to get it now. And if you if you let it slide... Uh, they'll remind you, hey, we had a great deal. So you'll have to wait to NAB to get a better one than that. And then uh, if you're into food, uh, Omaha Steaks has a big deal going right now. Uh, B&H, uh, you can get uh, Sony cameras and lenses, uh, I think up to $500 off. So it's well worth uh, shopping around. You'll find a great deal, but you got to have the money to spend. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, one of the biggest deals I'm really excited for right now is uh, in the lighting space. Aperture has their uh, Amaran series. Um, they're kind of, they're like more designated towards like creators, um, but they're like one to two, $300 off right now. So you can get like a 200 X, uh, F 22. Those are like a couple of my favorite lights and they're just an absolutely steal of a deal right now. That's awesome. Bill. Uh, for me, it's been software only, and I've been working off of Isotope 6 for a couple of years and hadn't really thought. And I, it has the plugins that I need that I run every day, particularly for narration work and things like that. But they did two-thirds off of their software, so the $300 package that I was eyeing went down to 99 bucks, and I figured that was enough to pull the trigger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, no Bomniscope is 30% off, which I use uh, very, very often. Uh, so that's a pretty good deal. Uh, also, the um, small rig, the, the V99 batteries, which Brandon actually got me into. <laughs> uh, I have three of them, but, you know, you can never have too many batteries. And those are, uh, I think, $100 off or something like that. So it's, it's a pretty good deal. What were you going to say, Brandon? Those are one of the most versatile batteries I've ever used. Yeah. I ended up, I think I bought like nine or 10 of them for the campaign and it was yeah. just, I used them everywhere. They're yeah, so yeah, great. Yeah. Absolutely. Mitchell? I have to ask a question. Is Black Friday better than NAB sales or should you wait for NAB? That's the big question. It's just different. I mean, I think that different people prioritize different things. So you have to kind of watch. Some people really use Black Friday as the way that they make up their quarter and some people wait until NAB. I think NAB, you know, I think it's, there's less of a, it has to be released at NAB than there has been in the past. But, but I think that it's still a pretty important time to, especially if you've got new products, you know, to go out. I don't see a lot of sales of old products at NAB. NAB is more of a, like Black Friday is more of a, we're going to sell what we have. NAB is more of a, we're going to announce what we have. You know, I think that that's kind of the, the deal. Next question. 
Julius Evans in New Orleans, Louisiana, is up next. What would be the best use case for using vMix to produce shows for organizations using Zoom, Teams, or WebEx, using vMix calls for the host and guest, and the vMix NDI output as a webcam in the conference for the audience? Is this a viable business model? And that's a QR code question this morning. A good guy. Yeah, a lot of us aren't using vMix call any longer just because on the remote side for the guest to join, uh, everybody knows Zoom or everybody knows Teams. And so use what they're used to using because the second that you start introducing these um, these web browser-based uh, pop-ups and there's some confusion there and they get frustrated. So even though the color quality, you can bump up and there's some isolation things, it is a nice way to get guests in. But unless you're doing it routinely uh, with somebody who's kind of tech savvy, I would just stick with regular plain vanilla Zoom. As far as the NDI output, you don't have to go NDI. Uh, vMix has something called external. That's how I'm piping in right now. So it just pops back in as a, as a webcam. So you don't even have to use NDI for the output. You just click external and it'll show up as a virtual webcam in all of your uh, apps that are connected to that particular computer. As far as it being a business model, I mean, it all depends on what your show is. I mean, there's so many different models, but as far as the software, I mean, it's great software. It's probably the best out there. I don't think that there's anything else um, on the PC side, maybe Livestream Studio that's pretty popular, Wirecast. But otherwise, hardware, lots of black magic stuff out there, Ross on the high end. Um, just depends, again, on what your numbers are and how much you're charging the audience to, to appear or how much you're getting dollars from your sponsor, whoever it is, to, to make that business MOOC. Yeah, the, um, I, I would say that you know, Teams and WebEx are not really built for broadcast. So if you may have to use them, and you should always have a computer that's capable of grabbing onto those. Um, you know, they're not, they just don't have the broadcast tools available, you know, like they're, uh, and um, the uh, vMix though, uh, you know, definitely can attach to Zoom directly now. So you don't have to use, um, or is that still in beta or is it out? Is it out, out? Um, it's, it's, it's beta it's right now. It's vMix 27. Yeah. Uh, you can download it, and, but it's mm -hmm. not recommended for production at the moment. I mean, yeah, it's been solid. I've, I've piped it for many days and it's, it's solid. So uh, yeah, I'd still recommend uh, when it comes out the final, but not in production right now. Yeah, so I'm, we're going to be doing a lot more testing in Memo Live on the Mac and on and vMix on the PC uh, to really look at, you know, kind of pushing that and how far, how close can we get the show. I think that this time that we spent not having the hardware kind of got us into like, let's look at all the all the different options that we have here. So vMix, Memo, um, probably Wirecast as well. Uh, doing it, uh, uh, we're looking at Vector, um, you know, as another, as another solution that we're going to start testing soon. So there's a lot of... Um, uh, so there's a lot of different both cloud and um, location-based stuff. But I think that the thing that still keeps on coming up is that Zoom ISO and the tools that are tying into Zoom uh, definitely set it a fair couple notches above. That said, you'll have some companies that are like, we can only use WebEx, we can only use Teams. So understanding how to use those is fine. Uh, we found that for the most part, when we explain what the advantages are, um, to to Zoom uh, 1080p, some of the Zoom ISO stuff, you know, not having any debris. Um, a lot of people will figure out how to use Zoom because a lot of them have. Um, but uh, but there's still companies that are kind of locked into Teams and, and WebEx. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, you have mentioned before uh, WebEx and Teams for broadcast. What was the not so great but uh, very accepted standard for broadcast? They made a box for it. 
Uh, yeah, that was Skype. You know, Skype. and and, yep, and that Skype. was a really you know it's a pretty genius uh, piece of hardware. Uh, I had about six of them for at one point. Um, so these were the Skype TX boxes. Uh, there was a 100 and a 400 that NewTek sold. Um, there was another company in the UK that sold them as well. And uh, what these did was it just was for a, for a broadcaster, you didn't have to think about how am I going to wire up my computer and have an output and everything else. It was a one U box. You slide it in and it ties into SDI and you're done. <laughs> you know, and, and that's and that was the um, it just really just tightened that whole thing up. And so it went everywhere. I mean, you know, and I think that. Um, so I think that those are the things that, uh, uh, I, I think that that definitely, you know, made a big, big difference in, in the acceptance of that process. Uh, next question. John Fultz in Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania comes up next. I have a cable box with an HDMI output. I also use an Apple TV with audio going to HomePod minis. Is there a way to get the audio from the cable TV to the HomePod minis? Go ahead, Jason. There is, but full disclosure, I've never actually tried it. So um, there is an article on Engadget about how to do this. It has to do with EARC. So you need a TV with EARC, Enhanced Audio Return Channel. That needs to be plugged in to the um, to the Apple TV. So you, if you have one EARC on your, um, on your TV, you have to plug it into the Apple TV. There's the QR code and the, the way to do it. And it needs to be the Apple TV 4K. So... Um, Give it a shot. Go ahead, Bill. I think Jason explained it beautifully there. I've got uh, a pair of original HomePods, not the minis, but I think they're nothing but backward compatible now. And uh, having the HomePods as stereo speakers, essentially I have two of them on each side of the TV, uh, it's been problematic in the past sometimes. And you do have to jump through some hoops like Jason just explained if you want to do something outside of its normal signal paths. But... It has also really improved over the last six to ten months for me. And now it seems to work all the time smoothly, and it's really nice to have that next to the TVs. I have to admit, it's been a long time since I've had cable. I just don't I don't understand anymore. Like it, the, the, the online experience is so much better. Like I'm just, if you have it, I mean, I understand if you don't have an Apple TV and you just have your, your, your TV and it's just, but if once you have an Apple TV, you know, I, I kind of, I will say, you know, like, like it was one thing to watch. Like I've gotten so used to the, I got the NFL ticket and what I'm used to now on my Apple TV, I could never go back to TV because I go, oh, I'm 20 minutes late. Just show me the most important. I mean, and it's happening in real time. Show me the highlights the, 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 that get me up to right now. Or I want to start 20 minutes behind because I'm not going to try to tweet things out. And I just want to, I'll just slowly move through all the commercials as I go through. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that I do all the time that's just kind of standard operating procedure now that I just don't know, you know, how I, and I watch all my movies through it. I don't, you know, I, I think that there's so many features that once you get used to it, I will say that it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't, if I had an Apple TV, I wouldn't be trying to pipe through it. I'd be just replacing my cable experience with, with that. Go ahead, Bill. I will have to admit, I've actually done the same thing. I have my Apple TV and I have my cable box on two separate inputs. And we usually go to one system or the other. It is possible to link them through and try to do it in one. But to be honest with you, I find it more annoying than useful. And I know when I'm going to watch something on Apple. So I just switch to that. The AirPods or the HomePods kick in mm. and my Apple TV experience is now because of that much richer than my regular cable experience. I don't. I don't even have. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how to turn my <laughs> how to how to have my TV do something other than 
it's just Apple TV is what it does. Like it, it's, an, it's a monitor for an Apple TV. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it can get confusing because if you have an AV receiver that's doing the switching of the audio, um, it's also switching the video. And some are better than others at doing 4K, and some are quicker than others. Uh, I know on my uh, old uh, Denon that it takes upwards of 15 seconds for it to do the handshake and do the actual switch. So having a separate input on your TV or device um, where it directly switches the uh, uh, the Apple TV or your cable box is probably a better bet. And that's that would definitely affect me if I use something other than the Apple TV going into it. So my Apple TV goes into my in, into a AVR, but that's the only thing. I mean, there's other things that go into the AVR, but I haven't switched to them in years. Like I don't know. I don't. I mean, I, I'm sure that they're they're in the server rack, like with the AVR, but I don't know what. I don't know. I don't even know if they work. You know, I think there's a. You know, so so I've I've kind of stopped going down that path. Like it'll everything. throw you because you'll switch it and you're wondering well, what's up and nothing's happening. I don't think it would throw me because I don't, I don't see why I would go anywhere else. Like I don't, I have nothing else to put on that TV. Um, go ahead, Bill. The other thing is that now this is the way we are in, the, in modern uh, entertainment. You now have three incredibly smart devices, right? Because they built all that intelligence and the cable direct feeds and everything else into the TVs. Then you have your cable box that has access to all that stuff through a paid service. Then you have the Apple TV on the other side that is also an incredibly intelligent source. So you really have three conductors that you're trying to make all again, understand again. each and, other, and it's and crazy. I, I don't think people worry about it when they don't. I mean, again, I also have YouTube TV on my Apple TV, and that eliminates any interest in having uh, cable. You know, like it's it's uh, it's again, it's the the YouTube TV is it's just a much much better experience than cable ever was. And I, but I, I only remember cable as distant memory because the last time I had a subscription to cable was nineteen ninety oh nineteen ninety. 1994. <laughs> so, so, so I haven't had it. So I admit that I'm in a different different space than most people. I, but I like watching the TV shows. I watch. I mean, when people come over, we watch news and things. But I, I mostly just watch movies. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Julius Evans in New Orleans, Louisiana. Office hours is uh, the standard for producing a pro virtual production on the internet. The broadcast television experience that the show's core panelists possesses evident in the production value. What? the workflow for the show pre to post show oh i feel like that's, that's a, a whole we've we've talked about this as how a much whole time show. do you have <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think that this is it's a great question um you know what we'll do is we will i'm, gonna, I'm not gonna i'm gonna take kind of a side out here i'm not gonna answer your question today but i'm gonna tell you that we will do this in december we'll we'll spend a whole second hour and we'll have folk, i, I want to organize it. i shouldn't be the one telling you like we shouldn't be that we should not be telling you we should get the teams that work on this and see if we can just talk about the workflow because um, it's a pretty amazing workflow w built by an amazing team. And I don't want to short it by trying to describe it here. So so um, I'm going to see who we can get available in December. We'll find a date that we can do that. We can bring on the key people or people that are willing to come on and talk about it. And we'll try to go nuts to bolts through what it takes to actually put this show together. But I just don't think we can do it uh, justice by trying to trying to answer it here but it's a great question and we'll 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 answer it in in a fair bit of detail in the next uh over next month yeah go ahead mitchell 
I don't know if you've seen the Assembled series on Disney Plus where they go into mm-hmm. the uh, the background. Yeah. And they do a pretty good job of it. A little long, but I just watched the one on Loki. Yeah. It would be very interesting to do almost a documentary style of everything that makes We're the Office have- Hours world work. Wouldn't it? You have to find time and people willing to put the resources in. But yeah, oh, man. yeah, I mean, yeah there you go. <laughs> go ahead, guy. Yeah, if you do a search just on the Office Hours Global YouTube website, you just type in Office Hours uh, 2.0. Uh, these will at least get you uh, kind of up to speed as to what we've done in the last year, uh, which have some of the diagrams. So if you, in between now and whenever we get to talk about it more, if you watch these couple episodes, this one, yeah. uh, 2.0 reviewing, and then there's another one focus on Office Hours Update 2, 2.0 uh, and the Switch. So there's quite a, there's quite a few, but... The, to answer quickly wouldn't do us justice because those things are an hour long and there's four of them. So there you go. Watch the, watch those four hours and you'll get up to speed pretty quick. Get those and then and then we'll do another one where we really bring the team on to talk through some of the stuff. So stay tuned for that. It's it's a it's a pretty uh, amazing <laughs> amazing system. Next question. Ah, uh, here we go. Now we're going to get some controversy going. Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. Reliable coffee makers for road gigging. Aeropress, Mister Coffee, Krups, Brun. Bun, what, what, what? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, so I come from the coffee world on this one. Um, I would say an AeroPress is probably going to be your best bet on the road. But the bigger logistic that you have to overcome is finding hot water. And if you have access to a Starbucks, they're great for it. Uh, but I found there's this whole new category of mobile uh, electric kettles you can get. They're like the size of a hydro flask. And I just uh-huh. traveled all over the country with one. And it's phenomenal. And Who makes it'll that? all fit in like a... Uh, so let's see. The one I got is from this company, Bali Bali. It's like nineteen dollars uh-huh. on Amazon, um, and, and it just then, makes hot water. Yeah, and it just makes hot water. Um, and it's yeah, you know because it's not the same. You use the the hot the the coffee thing, which they're slowly taking out of a lot of our hotel rooms. Exactly. But you take, and then if you run the water through it, it tastes like the bad coffee that they had that hasn't been cleaned in the last sixty years. And hundred percent. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Absolutely. That yeah, the the hot water is the biggest thing I recommend, and then uh, you know, a little hand grinder, and you basically anywhere in the U.S. or anywhere that you're traveling, you can pick up coffee and you're ready to go. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, good. Bali, Bali. All right, uh, Jason. Just kind of a quick aside. Um, after you've got the water hot, thank you, Alex. Like the the, the, oh, the ember mug is just. <laughs> oh. Yeah, the Ember mug works well, especially when you have a long show that you do every day. Uh, I've, I've got two of them here to keep keep things warm. Um, the uh, I um, I have to admit that most of the time when I travel, I I go to Starbucks. You know, to to you know, I, I usually I know where the Starbucks is where I travel, and I go there and and um, I don't I don't eat out very much. So I, it's funny. I have this thing. I really like the Impossible Burger at or the Impossible Sandwich at Starbucks, and so. My, I'm traveling t- treat. Some people like to go to big buffets and the big breakfast and everything else. My traveling treat thing is I get I get my America my grande americana with nothing in it and a and a an impossible burger and that's like my little like treat for the that I'm 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 not at home making a much better meal. <laughs> so so anyway so but it's something at least different. Um, the uh, you know with the the. The the funniest one that I've ever I've ever seen is there was a there was someone we did production with or someone it, we didn't do production with them they were in the back when you do these big events there's like 
300 people back there and like six different companies and everything else. But there was one guy that had built it into his road case. It was a full on like Italian, you know, espresso, you know, like it was just, and, and you could hear, you had to wait at certain, you couldn't, you, you had to put your order in because he would say, oh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And it's like the audio guy or something. I don't know what it was, but when it was like, and, and you just hear this down, way down the and he would he'd make you a cappuccino it definitely everyone knew him like everyone knew who he who he was but it didn't seem like the most practical thing behind an event but anyway it, it, it was good um yeah there you go next question next one comes to us from vic hernandez oh i'm sorry chester sweeney in las vegas recently alex mentioned a small electric screwdriver which one which brand oh i have so many um, you know, so I have so many electric screwdrivers. Hitachi is the one that I've been using the most. So I have a, I have a Hitachi. It's got the little round ones. That's, that's the one I used last night. So, but I have a DeWalt. Um, so the thing about the, the thing that I really like about the Hitachi one is, that I have is that it snaps in both the DeWalt and the Hitachi. They bend in the center. So don't get one that's just, that's just hard, long. It's got to have a, it's got to have a hinge in the center of it because it really makes a difference to get into certain places. And you don't want it to be just a pistol either because that'll be hard to deal with. So you want it to be straight, straight with a hinge and that's the key. And then obviously rechargeable batteries have lots of them, <laughs> know where your chargers are. Um, and that, that usually is. And uh, anybody who's ever built a rack without a drill, uh, you need one. Like it's super important. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the Black & Decker I use for my rack, um, and here's the uh, the trick to having it work right, is it needs to have a uh, torque stop on it, because if you're doing rack screws, you don't want to strip them. Yep. Yep. You go, Bill. Well, you said small, so one of my favorite new little tools is this little time. It's a, it's a teeny, teeny micro uh, screwdriver with that, but the thing is, the number of bits that they provide with it, yeah. this is two-thirds of them. There must be 70 or 80 little tiny uh different i got one and i got one of those just like that and i can't find it it's somewhere in my, it's somewhere in this office it's like i put the i put that put it down somewhere and i can't uh can't locate it i needed it yesterday the other day because i had to disassemble my kvm switch but um yeah go ahead jason uh, regardless of which screwdriver you use speaking of black friday i fix it makes the best bits and they are compatible with all electric screwdrivers, and they are actually stainless steel, and they actually have a warranty that's decent. Yeah, I got one for my son. He's got the iFixit one. So he, that's it. I, I had to borrow that yesterday, too. Uh, next question. Uh, Vic Hernandez is up from Springfield, Missouri, next. And Vic says, present company excluded. Who are your favorite voiceover actors or narrators? I like Will Lyman and Frontline, Stacey Keach, the Nova, and others from PVS, and John Facenda of NFL Films. Go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Vic, I'm glad you mentioned John Vicenda. I grew up with him here in the Philadelphia area. He used to be on Channel 10. It was a CBS affiliate. And he just had this great sonorous radio voice from way back when. And he's the guy you recognize from the original NFL films, like these modern-day gladiators. You know, this guy just had this rolling voice. So I grew up with him. Uh, and since then, at NFL, uh, Harry Callis and another gentleman named uh, Jefferson K., who has passed on. In fact, all of them have passed on. Maybe that's a curse. But um, there's a lot of people out there that do this uh, for, for a living. Some of them are actors. Some are just voiceover people. Here's a, here's a crazy one. My favorite is Lee Schreiber, who's an actor, and uh, he's doing more and more documentaries. He just has this voice, and he knows how to 
romance to copy the way it needs to be done. Look them up. Go, Leave Schreiber. Go ahead, Bill. So for me, uh, my hero of voiceover is a guy in by – well – he did the voice of Tony the Tiger, so he did your great. And in that one thing, you can always tell it's him. I didn't know who it was until I went to a thing in uh, in Long Beach called the Pageant of the Masters. And this is a really interesting thing. Uh, thank you to my brother-in-law for grabbing tickets one year. What they do is they create onstage famous paintings. So the actors are in period costume. They're behind a scrim. When they open up the lighting on it, you would think it is a Gainsborough or a Raphael or some other painting that you're sitting there looking at. But then eventually, after the narrator explains the history of the art, they raise the scrim and everybody walks off and you realize it was real people. It is a, a stunning artistic achievement. And they mentioned the, the narrator at the end and they said this name, Thurl Ravenscroft. And I didn't know who it was, but then I looked up his curriculum vitae. He did all of those Disney things, Sleepy Hollow. He did, um, he just has this amazing voice and an incredible presence. And he's got a credit list that goes on and on and on forever. So if you've ever been in a Disney exposition like Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that, Thurl is in there somewhere. He passed away a few years ago, but he was an astonishing talent. Christopher Walken. Next question. Next question comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. If Apple were to have a shot on iPhone video contest, what might be the cost of entry in terms of gear? Will we need to lower cost categories just like the Student Academy Awards? Uh, go ahead, Jason. Uh, okay. So this is one of these um, truth and a lie things. The The truth is, yes, you can shoot it on an iPhone. The lie is you're, you're still going to need so much out of the camera department, the lighting, the scrim, the, um, you know, the, the rigging that uh, you're not going to save a ton of money. Like I don't if think you're it's shooting really money. high grade. I don't, I don't think that they, I don't think that, I think Apple, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I actually uh, submitted a film, uh, Moment, has been doing a shot on iPhone uh, contest for a number of years. And about two or three years ago, I submitted a film for it. And it was, you know, very basic production. But I think like if you just kind of separate out different categories of like, here's just shot on iPhone, here's iPhone plus team, here's iPhone plus team and everything else. Uh, I think that would be like a pretty good way to, you know, show the different levels of what you can get away with and especially with the 15 Pro now, like that quality is coming up quite a bit. Good, Bill. I came up with a line for one of my articles 25 years ago that stuck with me forever. And the line that I wrote was, it's never the piano, it's always the piano player. It is not the equipment that makes these things. It is that amazing team behind it, everywhere from the writer, the conceptual artist, the writers, the animators, they bring in whatever equipment they need to execute their vision. And whether that camera in the middle is an iPhone or something else, it benefits from the rest of that knowledge and expertise that is surrounding it. Um, the iPhones are, I think, the first generation of phones that have the respect of being able to put, you know, if you put it in the middle of that big workflow, you're not going to get a bad result. You're not going to get a result that people can look at on the TV set or wherever and say that was shot on something less than mm -hmm. full quality. 
It's just not there anymore. We're seeing these things from Apple and others, and we're going, this looks just like everything else I'm using. And that's because the artists behind it knew its limitations and where it's good at, and they've leveraged the hardware device to make it look as good as it can be. But, you know, people have been doing that since the dawn of time. A a person playing a Stradivarius has to be a good violinist first, but then the equipment enhances that a little bit more and makes it something special. I think we're in the same place now. Go ahead, Mitchell. I think a challenging one would be shot on six. That would be very challenging. Uh, the <laughs> very alternative challenging. would be maybe using my backup camera on my car. Yeah, yeah there you go. A good guy. Yeah, since Sky's not here today and on behalf of Seattle, um, I'll say it for him. Story. It's all about the story. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I think that um, I think that what Apple should do, if I was, or if I was Apple and I was going to do this, I would give put a pretty big price tag on it. But I would make part of your winning showing how you did it. So to prove that you shot it with the iPhone, we want to see all every shot you have to shoot behind the scenes of the shot. And um, and then you engage people to, you know, there's going to be a whole documentary that's built behind it of how you did it. And the reason for that is that it, it would allow Apple, it would engage many filmmakers to show many different ways of using the iPhone that Apple could publish out and show and teach everybody how to shoot with the iPhone. So, so it wouldn't matter who won. It wouldn't matter whether you're doing it with one person or eight people or whatever. Just get the people who have the resources to do it all the way up, but have them show you how they're doing it and have them talk about the lighting and talk about the things. And it'd be a great filmmaking um, uh, process. So anyway, that's my, that's my two cents. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says, the industry talks about LLMs, large language models, being the next big thing with the open AI boardroom drama. Do you think tech companies will see that bashing a product or service around somebody else's LLM just makes your product or service more vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, I, well, basing, I think, not basing. basing I'm sorry, I said bashing. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, yeah ba- uh, basing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, I, I think that... Uh, there are some companies that are depending on more than one LLM to, to make that actually happen. So, you know, federating these between multiple, um, you know, uh, LLMs, I think makes sense. I do think that OpenAI has solved most of that problem, but you do have to be careful of paying attention, you know, trying to, um, and I think that what they've created so far may not be what we end up using. I mean, they've, they've gotten far enough ahead, but, but there's a lot of, you know, rebuilding these models is something that can be done. Um, and so it's not, it's not that it's, you know, other people are going to come up with their own models and some of the models are going to be completely paid for. So I think that you'll see these copyright, you know, safe models where people feel like there's, there's ownership available and, and so on and so forth, where everybody gets a piece of the copyright, for instance, and, and those types of things. So you're going to have different models um, that, that work in different ways um, as you go down that path. And so I don't think that, I think that where you'll really see an explosion of all kinds of models is once a lot of the lawsuits get to the Supreme Court and are decided if they're if they lose those lawsuits, uh, then a, then the game will be really on. <laughs> like we haven't like what we've seen so far is just you know this is like the first inning, <laughs> you know like it's a very very uh, very very early early days here. So so but I but I think uh, and they're yeah they're going to continue to get more and more powerful. It's kind of an amazing like I I I I was amazed when my wife said she was using ChatGPT. Like I don't know why. It was just like there was something about that of her going, "Oh yeah, I I I asked it this thing." Um you know, she's asking like, "What are the best gifts for this kind of person?" blah 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 and it just gives her a whole bunch of ideas. You know, and, and as as a brainstorming tool, I think a lot of these these AI tools that's where they're really strongest at the moment. Uh next question. 
Paul Pruskowski in Gainesville, Florida is up next. He says, what are some good wireless in-ear monitor systems? And he's looking for hardware and software to support a distributive team producing a multi-location event. Good, Bill. I'm very glad, Paul, that you mentioned the system because we often uh, focus on just what's my best in-ear monitor, but that is really just the last tip of the entire chain. And the I think the chain is far more important than that little tip. You can plug 10 different things into a really good uh, talkback or commentary or, or IFB system, and they will all work really, really, really well. Um, I know Alex has a lot of opinions on this. I'm hoping he'll give you some some suggestions as to how um, these different ones vary. But it, the system is more important, I think, than whatever is sticking in your ear. There are a lot of good things to stick in your ear for, to do that. Good guy. Yeah, it depends on if you need them to talk as well. So what you're going to see on a lot of sets are Comtex. These are the most popular. And so you'll get one of these little body pack. Uh, you'll get one of these little body packs and then something like um, some cheap headphones normally, like even these little cheapies here, because you really don't want them back after people have used them. Uh, and especially if it's something like this where you stick it in their ear. Uh, and then there's the ear heroes that I know Alex uses a lot that uh, you can also throw in. So it just depends on, again, if you want them to talk, that's a different system. That's a, a, an entirely different chain. Um, there's Riedel and there's some of these other um, higher-end systems that people will use. But uh, if you don't need them to talk, then you just need to blast it out. Then the Comtex, and normally these things are rented or you'll find a sound person that has them. And then Electrosonics, if you need some high-end stereo stuff, Electrosonics makes some really nice uh, offerings with the MT, M2T and M2T or M2R. Yeah, the the, um, the one that we've used the most uh, for these has been the uh, Shure PSM-1000. So that's got two channels per U, um, and so these are, they're you know they're hardware devices that let you just do it, and, and you have it. And these are just these are straight IFB. We use it. We've we I owned. I used to. I don't know how many of the Comtex I used to own, but we used those mostly for our clients. We didn't really use them necessarily for. So we gave them to the, on the set. We gave them to everybody so they could just hear the show, so they could walk around and hear the show. And those work on a seventy-five megahertz or two sixteen. I think are the are the two that are there. The um, the or 75 hertz, anyway, um, 75 and 216, <laughs> the two channels that I know that we had there. Um, and the uh, uh, the ones that we do that are really invisible are Phonax. So Phonak works on the same as the Comtex, actually, but but you can actually put them in. They, they look like, if you ever watched 24, they're like little Jack Bauer ones, and you pop them in, and those are the most low-key, like you don't see, there's no wires, there's no nothing. They don't go very far, so you you know that's a studio environment type and you know type system. Um, the uh, so the uh, but they are they're really you know um, people like them, <laughs> you know like they they think that they're cool. The quality of the audio isn't really great, you know, but it's good enough to hear what people are are giving you instructions for. So uh, they I think that Jack Nicholson used to use a phone act to have people read him his lines right before he said them during the thing, and I guess um, I heard that. Uh, uh, Johnny Depp used to have music playing for his mood when Pirates of the Caribbean in these little phonex. <laughs> you can't see them. So anyway, so those are they're, they're but they've been popular for a long time. Um, but but yeah, the um, uh, uh, but the PSM one uh, thousands are the things that we uh, have probably used uh, used the most. Um, next question. Alexander Knight, Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. I notice when people start a screen share in Zoom, the video feed goes slightly pixelated for a brief second. Why is that? 
Sorry, I got, this is what happens when I try to answer a question. I get in the wrong place. Mitchell? Yeah, I've seen that before, Alexander. It's uh, pretty typical. My guess is it's a little bit of a heavy lift for Zoom because it's got to probably switch uh, uh, the uh, scaling and the resolution of the image. So there's just that moment where it has to think about it and process it and then get it back up on the screen. Next question. Next one comes to us from Guy Cochran here on the panel from Seattle, Washington. What's the best iPhone app for scanning a venue for menu measuring the stage, ceiling height, and so forth? Ideally, would be able to do text over a file. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Mm, all right. Um, I like Polycam if you just want to turn out a USDZ. But um, for me, the magic mix is a combination of an app called Magic Plan and um, and Polycam. So, you know, I can very, very quickly get a 3D setup of a building. And then with one, um, with one um, laser measurement that comes in through Bluetooth that the app interacts with, force scale that entire thing and take stuff like, you know, the 360 degree pictures that I've taken and incorporate them directly into the plan. And yes, this can be shared over the net and also um, exported as a USDZ. That's great. And that's Magic Plan? Magic Plan, yep. That's great. Yeah, the um, the challenge really is, is things that are larger than 30 feet. So 30 feet away, that you can't get within 30 feet of it because that's about the limit of the LIDAR. So um, so you'll find that you if you use something like Polycam and, and you have really high ceilings, if you're talking about a stage or something like that, it just it can't get up there. <laughs> you know, so so that's the that's the challenge I've had. But <clears throat> in smaller venues, I use Polycam all the time. Pretty much if you leave me in an empty room, I had my, my daughter was playing at a venue. Uh, she was playing drums at a venue and uh, they were getting set up and they were all set up and the room was still empty. So I scanned it. And, and my daughter's, my daughter's, uh, my daughter's friends were like, like, your dad is taking pictures of the wall. <laughs> like, what is going on? <laughs> so, but I, but I now have that venue, uh, you know, scanned and I can, you know, if I ever wanted to do, you know, I, I don't, I've learned not to assume I'm not going to do something here, you know, and so I, I, I figured I might as well get the measurements for it. So, but that's when you start going into a, uh, larger scanner. You know, um, one of the things I took advantage of when I, because I have a scanner, um, you know, the, the Leica, the, um, I would use it as previs all the time just because if I'm doing an event there, they'll probably let me do what I need to do to be like, hey, can I take some measurements? And then I take all the measurements at one time with it. And um, then I, so I have lots of venues. <laughs> so next question. Adrian Watkins coming to us from Wellington, New Zealand is up next. Reuters are reporting that an undisclosed artificial general intelligence breakthrough may have been the catalyst for the Altman firing. Panel thoughts? Uh, go ahead, John. We talked about this yesterday on yesterday's show. I, I'm not going to contribute any more to the, the, the rumor mill here. I suspect we'll find more about this uh, this coming week. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, I mean, to, to, to contribute a little bit to the rumor mill, <laughs> John won't, <laughs> but I will, uh, you know, so the, you know, they, you know, it probably has to do with math equations that it was able to do a math equation that was like, I don't know, a sixth grade level or fourth grade level or eighth grade level. Um, you know, so that would be the thing that would have them. And I think that it's a very limited way to measure intelligence. So I think that I don't, you know, sure. <laughs> you know, so, so, but, but, but I guess they've decided that's an area of measurement that they care about. So we'll, um, we'll see how that goes. Um, it, it definitely, it's something, it does feel like when we, when the story unfolds about what happened, something had to have happened because it was just a very, uh, f fast and furious, you know, um, knee jerk, ex what, what really appeared like a knee jerk, um, reaction by the board. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. Um, next question. 
Stephen Montagna, Madison, Wisconsin. Up next, what's your favorite and or proudest moment of a jury rig solution, a time you had to solve a problem with less than ideal tools, equipment, and resources? <laughs> the one that I'm, I have one that's not, not necessarily uh, – uh, yeah, go ahead, Guy. I had one when I was fresh out of college. I used to work for a, what they call a service bureau, a pretty high-end uh, place. It was voted Kodak Lab of the future, so it was high-end place. And I was uh, printing these large format uh, prints for uh, a very large company. And it was a rush order. It had to be done overnight. I was working the graveyard shift. And so this machine wouldn't fire up. It just went went out. It was a DEC, if you know, DEC, DEC Alpha computer. So this that was the RIP. And uh, it just went dead. And I was like, uh-oh, what do I do? And I remember that there was a film scanner upstairs, another high-end solitaire. It was called film scanner. It had a, the same deck. So I, knowing computers, I was like, all right, I think it's power supply. So I found a screwdriver, <laughs> pulled the power supply out of the deck upstairs, ran it downstairs, installed it, fired it up and out and everybody was pretty amazed in the morning that we still got the order out and it was for a big company so it kind of saved the day on that one that was my, pretty much my biggest jury rig thing and that was very dangerous for a kid fresh out of college to do because deck computers back in those days were big money like more than 10 grand for that good brandon yeah so i uh just recently um been doing a lot of live broadcast tv and there was a miscommunication on timing for everything, and I didn't have a lighting kit at all with me. Um, thankfully, I travel with one of those little aperture MC lights and a monopod. So I ended up lighting a live TV news hit with simply just an MC light on a monopod. And to be honest, you would be none the wiser. Felt pretty great. Jason? Okay. No, I'm not proud of this one. But um, I was doing... I was doing backup on a um, on a broadcast in Maryland, and it was in a hotel venue. And everyone knows that the bandwidth in hotel venues is not ideal. Um, so I ended up just kind of talking my way into the back of the network closet and taking back the internet, just taking the whole thing down for the entire rest of the hotel. Um, in order to get our broadcast done, because I reminded them of a certain clause in the contract that said my bandwidth, your bandwidth is mine first, and everything else is yours. Good, Bill. So mine was at uh, a live thing that I did. It was the Athena Awards in Phoenix. So this is for the Outstanding Woman of the Year in in media. And um, my job was to videotape her. She was on stage with the wireless microphone. I met her before that. I didn't know her very well at all. And I looked down and she was wearing one of the most elegantly tailored uh, outfits that I have ever seen. And it suddenly struck me that it was so elegantly tabled, uh, t tailored that it was completely form-fitted. It had no extra thing. There were no pockets, no anything. And I thought, how am I going to mic her? I've got no place to put a body pack. I've got no place to rig anything. She's going to be walking through the audience. What am I going to do? And I remember just this cold, horrible feeling of, am I going to blow this gig? What am I going to do? Finally, at the last minute, I, I just had this please work inspiration of she had a handheld mic. And I took my smallest body pack transmitter and lav and literally gaff taped it to her mic. And thinking, please don't conflict, and it worked perfectly. But that was, oh, God, I had a terrible half hour trying Good to think Mitchell. through that. 
What's interesting about these stories is most of them are broadcast related. And uh, so is my story. Uh, Way back when, when I was uh, working at a station in Philadelphia, uh, the big uh, talent was Jim O'Brien, who's since passed. Uh, He was very well known, very liked, very intense individual. And we were doing a helping hand marathon and uh, he was scheduled to come on the air, but he was covering something and they had to fly him by helicopter. Anyhow, there was a half an hour window where they had to have Jim on the air, but he couldn't be in two places at once. So I stepped in and did a spot-on imitation on him because he was my mentor. And um, I think I pulled it off, except when he found out who did it, then he was not happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, um, I I come from, I mean, I won't tell too many <laughs> too many of these stories i come from the country i come from appalachia so like our entire life experiences is, is tying things together and um with 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 things and uh i uh i think that the one that i'm probably the most proud of was my my we moved into this new house and there was this parking area and as soon as my wife pulled out of it i said you're going to tear the front if you keep on coming out that way at that speed you're going to tear the front uh bumper off and she's like, oh, no. three days later, she tore the bumper off. And and I was like, <laughs> I went and got braided wire and uh, duct tape that matched the color of the car. And I put that I put that bumper back on. And from about 10 feet away, you couldn't tell. <laughs> you couldn't tell that, that, that it, was, it wasn't there. Like, and she was like, I don't know if I should be impressed or very frightened at your ability to craft a bumper back to it, back onto it with duct tape. But anyway, but anyway, that's that's the one. I think that the one that probably was the most impactful. It's not, it's kind of jerry-rigging. We were doing an event um, at the Masonic Temple in uh, LA um, and um, I think it was Masonic Temple, USC. Anyway, so we were doing one there. It's a big project, a lot of people. And um, the, I think I've told the story, so I'll keep it quick. The uh, power went out and when they relaunched it, they, they, the truck, the router for the truck no longer came back up. This is a 42 foot double expando. And um, they, you know, we didn't have a show. You know, this is like a couple hours before the event. And the I didn't do it, but I was like just, we were just riding through it. And we, the the audio, the, or the, the truck engineer and the video, um, the, the TD who happened to design studios for Sony, they figured out how to rewire that truck in 45 minutes, you know, by just hardwiring it into the switcher. For, so as production goes, uh, first camera came up 20 minutes before the show. Uh, we started on time <laughs> and, and the client thought it was the best show ever. And so that went, and, and I think that the, it's not so much that I did that one, but what I will say is that that is the power of hiring really high end. Like I focus a lot on hiring a very experienced, very high end crews because when things go wrong, they would figure them out, you know, as opposed to, um, uh, you know, like, you know, people can, you can hire a lot of crews that can do things on sunny days. It's the crews you hire are the ones that can do it on the rainy days. Um, next question. Next one comes from Robert Gramling in uh, MKE, Wisconsin. I probably should know what that is. Milwaukee. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Just got a Samsung T7 2 terabyte drive, $99 at B&H. My research shows the T5 selling for much more. Is this due to the cash issue? Yep. <laughs> a lot of us, I used, I have some T7s and I use the T7s as backup. I will not use them in production and no one will. No one know that I know will use the T7s in production because they have a tendency to stall. Um, and so they're not, I don't think, I don't think they ever got certified by, um, uh, I don't think they ever got certified by Blackmagic, but we had all kinds of problems connecting them to the Blackmagic uh, hardware. Um, I, <clears throat> they're, they have all kinds of stalling issues. And so I would not, um, uh, yeah, I would not, 
use those in production. Uh, but you can use them as backup. $99 is a lot is, is a good deal for two terabytes. Uh, next question. Pedro Gonzalez at Oklahoma City is up next. What wireless microphones are best for recording vocals of football players during the gameplay, both entry-level and god mode? Uh, go ahead, uh, Guy. Yeah, if it's a pack that's going on, a football player, there are regulations about these because they can hurt themselves. So there is a company that specializes in this. They're called a Q5X. These are very thin um, uh, like when you look at them, they're thin and flexible. And so uh, those are the, the ones that uh, you'll see on the professional level. And then there's also parabolic mics, of course, from the sidelines. That way you're not attaching anything to anybody and that you're going to need somebody who's actually cueing that thing left, right, up, down to get those sounds. I once actually worked on that on that crew, that specific crew that puts them on the shoulder pads. They put them on the two guards. So they put them on both guards just in case one gets nailed. And the time that we were doing it, I'm not familiar with the ones that that guy showed there, uh, the ones that that were used on the on the sh- the show that on the game that I worked on was uh, Zaxcom, so they're very very small uh, Zaxcoms, and they um, and they would uh, and then you put a piece of neoprene over top of them, so they get put right into there. There's like a little cleft in the in the shoulder pad, and they get put there, and then you put the neoprene uh, over top of it, and it you know it's pretty seamless to them you know to to you know to to what it's there you know to the guards there but there's, there's two of them get, get, you know because the guards come in and out and but i guess the guards are the most stable you don't swap guards very often in the in the offensive line and so and what's interesting is also um there is a that team um and when i say i worked on that team i didn't do anything special i moved memory cards <laughs> you know like, and, and followed along and ran errands and got coffee um but the uh uh the team there is there to protect the the players. And so there's just a team there outside of the broadcast that is taking the mic and moving it up and down. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, like that's that's all they do is to make sure that you can hear the blue 45, blue 45, but you don't hear all the other stuff that happens um, in the in the huddle, which is very, is remarkably little. Like you think that there would be a lot of drama. There's not. They don't have enough time. Uh, next question. Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. Up next, shopping for a new laptop for software mixing. Is there any way to compare USB bandwidth to support external devices? For example, a lap- laptop A can handle more ba- bandwidth and power over laptop B. Go ahead, Jason. Okay, so the first thing you do is you get a MacBook Pro because it's always going to work. And then you use that to figure out what the bandwidth is of the drive that you're trying to measure, or in this case, the bandwidth. And once you have that known speed, there is actually a way to do this in Windows. Um, you can go over and um, load the command prompt and then you know type in WinSat space disks uh, hyphen drive and then the drive letter. And that will do a Windows-based push of the saturation of the drive. But again, you get a MacBook. The, you know, if you, get, if, if you decide to go down the PC level or MacBook, understand how many buses there are. So a MacBook Pro, I think, has, I believe, two buses. So you, if you, is it three buses? So there's three buses in it now. The older one, I think, had two. Um, right. So you have uh, so you have three buses, but you have to know what connectors are on what buses because that at that point you 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 know if you have something it's not connecting each one of those doesn't matter as much as connecting all of them and figuring out what the bandwidth is across all of those pieces at the same time. Uh, go ahead, guy. Yeah, from what I recall, Henry's uh, also using VMix. I believe he's talking about a software. PC-based uh, video mixer solution. So on that front, I'd be looking also at uh, laptops that include Thunderbolt, and that way I'd be kicking things out to Thunderbolt to get the fastest buzz possible. And then I would be looking at uh, known good um, capture devices such as the the AJA uh, 
um, uh, what is it? IO box, the 4k one that, uh, is tried and true. And also I'd be asking in the vMix forums, uh, to make sure that other people are using those ones and that it's compatible, but I wouldn't worry about USB speeds. I'd just go Thunderbolt. Oh yeah. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, and what was talked about buzzes is actually very important because most people don't realize that if you have two ports on one side of your laptop, they may be on two different buses, but they may be on the same bus, in which case they're going to share the bandwidth of that bus. So you really need to dig into the hardware configuration, look at the specs of the machine you have, and try to figure out maybe if I plug one into the left side and instead of plugging the second one into the other port on the left side, I plug it into the right side, you can get yourself on two different buses and get more performance out of it that way. And I will say that if, if you're talking about live mixing, um, I know people do this on a laptop. I would not. Like I would not, I would not do a live show on a laptop. Like I would bring a machine that has cards and internal you know, capacity and those types of things, even in a rack mount um, that I drop down. I just, I, you know, I've had too many problems with the, the performance of the laptop changing during a show over, you know, because of stress, um, you know, and so, so I would, I would, um, I would not, not do any kind of major show. You can do little shows with it and then you don't care about the bandwidth, <laughs> you know, but if you're doing a major show, I would, I would get a desktop machine. Um, next question. Alexander Knight, Port Coquitlam is back from uh, Canada. I have a, I have two rack power conditioners with a ton of pigtails going into wall warts. These are hanging off the back end and making me nervous. They'll slowly come unplugged over time. What's the solution to better secure and organize? Go ahead, Mitchell. I got two suggestions for one better than the other. Um, I have the same problem. The first thing you did right was to use those pigtails because it takes up less real estate on your power conditioner. What I generally do is I take the wall wart and zip tie it to a flat piece of uh, metal that's either in the rack or some part of the uh, uh, your system where it's close to all the devices that need the uh, power. The other solution is to go with a power distribution system like uh, Anchor which I like a lot better because it reduces the uh, wire count quite substantially. And if you get the right one, I don't know which one to recommend. Uh, you can get one that can cover most of your uh, power requirements. Go, Jason. Um, okay. So for the things that are always in Iraq that I've been nervous about in the past, this is a perfect use case for a cyanoacrylate, otherwise known as superglue. You just superglue the pigtail to the wall wart, and it's not going anywhere. Go, Bill. The other thing, if you want a, an elegant, a little bit pricey solution for the still photographer market, there's a company called Tether Tools, and they make a whole bunch of things that either uh, super glue or attach to something and have a little tether um, nylon braided cable or something like that that attaches to something else. They are designed so that a working photographer who is moving around a lot in a live circumstance so that their cables never come out. I've found their tools can, you can spend some money over there pretty easily, but they have a lot of bespoke solutions, particularly for things where you want to be sure that it's not going to fall out, but I have to take it off later. So they'll have little two part clips that are very small that you can detach on your intent to detach, but that when you click it in, it'll stay absolutely locked in position. So take a look at tether tools and see if you want to spend that kind of money. Yeah. And, uh, um, uh, 
if, if you're using a lot of wall warts, then you may be using, you may have a lot of things that are at the same voltage, like 12 volt or 18 volt or other things like that. And you can think about power distribution. So you just have a, a thing that you're, you get rid of the wall warts altogether. <laughs> like, you know, so they're, they are converting AC to DC. You can just give DC to DC. You can build it. You know, they, there's companies that make a lot of these PSC and others that make a lot of um, great uh, power distribution tools. And I would, I would strongly, if you're building something long term, We've had stuff where we still use the wall words if we're if we're changing the system a lot, but we at some point you want to think about moving to a power distribution block. Um, go ahead, Jason. Alex's advice is excellent. Just be double sure you understand uh, Ohm's law and um, <laughs> amperage and. Well, you voltage. can't you can't split it out. You need a a, a, a true power distribution block right. that's designed to de- deliver um, quality power to those. Or yeah, it'll be much worse than the other options. Go ahead, Mitchell. Just a tip, if you're sticking with wall warts, uh, get your P-Touch out and label what they go to because uh, you'll thank me later. First thing, the first thing when they show up now, <laughs> like it's just like there should be a law about having to mark your own uh, wall wart. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Next question. Next one comes to us from Danny Grizzle in Longview, Texas. It is Black Friday, Friday and I'm fighting activation issues on isotope. I'm burned up to spend hours only trying to find they're not compatible with Sonoma, I lock Apple Silicon or something else. It never works, but they don't say anything on the Black Friday sale. Good, Bill. I just went through this yesterday, so I appreciate where you are. They do have a variety of portals. Now, you can go through Isotope directly and buy from them. I, in this case, that $99 deal I got was actually through Sweetwater. And so, yes, I bought it. Yes, it came through. And then there was an in, they sent me an email saying, if you're in this circumstance, here's how you activate it. But if you're in this circumstance, here's how you activate it. Eventually, I had to go to the Isotope site. I managed to find the, they had sent me the password key via email. I used that on the Isotope site after I'd bought it elsewhere. And sure enough, by ignoring the first three and going to the one that they said was closest to my solution, it became very easy. And I got it uh, authorized and on very quickly. But I appreciate what you're saying. Sometimes the copy protection plans make it difficult to find the right way to get it on there. I'm not sure it's a Sonoma thing because I, I'm on the latest OS Um Sometimes OSs do make a difference. So, but I'd call them. The Isotope folks are nice. Give them a call, see if they can figure out how to help you work it out. Good, Jason. Isotope is now owned, I believe, by Native Instruments, which is a recent change since the last time I had to switch from one MacBook to the next. Um, my advice on just in general for Isotope is that if you go to iLock's actual direct site, get an iLock account, and then download um, Isotope's. Uh, downloader and put the iLock uh, um, username in there and then authenticate that through the portal, yeah, I think you'll have a much easier time. Uh, does Native Instruments use iLock? I don't think so. I don't know, well, the, but it, but it, it, it predates, so that's well, one I'm of those hoping, weird little I'm quirks. hoping that this, this means that they'll dump iLock because what a dumpster fire. <laughs> oh, it <laughs> like is. It is just the oh, it's worst, terrible. It's the worst idea. Like they should, I mean, I just would love to go back in time and just take that person and just give them something else to do. Here, have a cookie. Like just, just, to, just to knock that thought out of their head uh, so that they don't, they don't ever make that horrible piece of... Oh. Next I question. had iLock buttons on that system and I didn't push any of them. It's just I didn't I want to go through such that. a horrible pile of... Anyway, next question. 
Paul Prusikowski again, uh, Gainesville, Florida. I need help troubleshooting a recurring SRT glitch. A remote camera is sending SRT to the studio vMix. We regularly experience random glitches where the audio gets dirty or breaks up, forcing a retake. Our peplink routers are on both sides. Good guy. Yeah, I'd love to see the end-to-end uh, connection. Just what exactly are those peplinks doing? Because if they're bonding somehow, there there could be some kind of uh, traversal that's um, doubling up or something, and then breaking at certain points. But I would go hardware if possible. Uh, I know VMix is is your software. Uh, decoder, but on the other end, what are you using for an encoder? Uh, sometimes using something that's more robust that can actually handle H.265 at high data rates instead of these inexpensive uh, options. Uh, this is why I like running lots of tests, but uh, I used to have a, a, a nine up test that I would allow people in our SRT group. So I, I run a SRT uh, large Facebook group and I, I would put this nine up so anybody could send stuff up. Uh, I could spool that up today if you want, Paul, and we could run some tests. Uh, and, and, and that way we'll know uh, that it's not a port issue or if your pep link is doing some kind of uh, double um, um, authentication or something where it's, it's uh, doubling things up. I would never, I mean, I have in the past used uh, bonded solutions for uh, WebRTC, but I would never do it now. Like I would, I would consider that an invalid connection. Like it's just, I have so much trouble with it um, that uh, I will use it for streaming. So we do a lot of, you know, live view and a lot of bonded stuff. If I'm streaming one direction and I can increase a buffer, buffer to three seconds or five seconds or whatever, bonding works perfectly. Um, and for any time in real time uh, conversation, I would never do that, <laughs> like ever. Um, you know, and and also really consider whether you can do something that's going to record on the on the other side. Um, I've had some issues with uh, with um, what is it? Um, is it Shoutcast? Not it's not Shoutcast. It's a, oh, there we go. See, I went too long. I I I went through the black. I I, I you know I thought I had it figured now you out. Made me and feel I started. Better I talked over it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, 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 the Q and A is hard. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so like when it's pure Q and A, you forget. I went into that yeah, answer, and I thought I was going to say a couple things, and I said more. Anyway, next question. Next, Next question. question comes okay. from Mandy Carluccio in San Francisco, California. In a stereo audio workflow, is input ganging an industry standard term or just an Allen and Heath console term? Would stereo pairing be a better term to use with only two channels or is it better to use ganging even in vendor agnostic workflows? I go, Jason. I think this is an Allen and Heath thing. I've never heard it used outside of that world. Yeah, I would use stereo linking um, and looking in the... Uh, in the chat, Mickey agrees. I would say stereo linking, and that'd be good. Um, next question. Rian Smith in Trinidad, West Indies. Uh, I use 1080 PTZ and box cameras to get the right, uh, to get the height and small footprint. I mount them on light stands. My last two outdoor events, I put the stands on a box riser, but the base and sometimes wind cause vibrations on the image. What stands can fix this? So it's not the stand that fixes it. Well, the problem is, is weight. So the, the, the issue that you have is how heavy is that, uh, is whatever you're standing on. So you may find that, for instance, um, in the basic stand issue, you may not use, instead of using light stands, you may want to think about C stands. That's going to increase your weight. But the weight is what makes it stable. <laughs> so you have to think about that. Sandbags can also help. Um, you can... Uh, uh, you can have the sandbags and you can throw those sandbags on and that's going to weight it down a little bit more. But the problem is, is that that mass, 
the, the low, low mass of your light stand that makes it so easy for you to load it in is the what's it's what's vibrating and, and in the wind. So um, so those are the things that um, uh, that the um, so anyway, so you have the uh, C stands will be a lot more stable, especially if you one of the things that we've done for some of those is heavy C stand. And then we take the base, some of the bases on C stands you can take out, you can take the legs out and we weld that to a to a quarter inch thick plate. It does not make it lighter, <laughs> just in case you're wondering. And you can either weld it or you can have it screw in. So instead of popping in, you can give it a mount at the bottom so you can take the plate off. And you set it down and you and you plate it in there and then you throw a bunch of sandbags on it. It's still a single rod that's moving up. Um, and then it's still a single rod that's moving up. Now, as far as, uh, as, far as vibration, um, so that gives you the vibration. One of the things, that, the easiest thing you can do is throw thick neoprene underneath it. It's going to take out some of the fine vibration that you have. Um, so that, and, and then the other thing that we do, of course, the the couple rules of thumb when it comes to cameras. One is the operator can never be on the same base as the the same riser as the camera. So we always separate that out. So the op, the the camera has its own riser. The operator has their own riser, and they're usually spread out by you know, by an inch or two so that there's not, there's not, so that's on its own. Um, if you don't have a lot of, uh, if you don't have a lot of budget, we take folding tables and just stack them up to where we need the camera to be there. That's, that adds an enormous amount of mass um, to the, to the process. And they, they tend to keep a lot of vibration out. Um, the, the, the most aggressive way that we've done it is the um, uh, one, so, someone we were touring with had a block of concrete and they would literally take it and lower it into the into it. They had the riser, and the riser had I think about three inches of sand on the bottom. And then it and then they lowered the concrete into that sand, and then they poured sand all the way around it. And then they and they put everything on top with a couple inches of neoprene. And that that I will tell you, that camera did not shake. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter because we've had issues where the parking garage below us is a problem. Like at, at uh, San Jose Convention Center. The parking garage is right below the main system, and you get vibration all the time, as, just as trucks and things go through. So, um, anyway, there are ways to do that, but you know, there, it just depends on how much, how hard. There's some that are unavoidable, and then you get into image stabilization within those lens, you know, within the cameras and the lenses. Um, that's another way to think about it. So, um, I know that some people have used, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, um, gyros. But the problem with those is that they, sometimes they don't handle that really small vibration as well as you think. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, if you're going to be doing a lot of this stuff, I mean, you can't beat physics, but uh, Panasonic does have uh, optical image stabilization in their cameras, which works fantastic uh, compared to some of the other models that I've used. Uh, we swapped them out. Otherwise, people were buying things like this, which is a... Um, it's a dampener. I mean, these will help. A lot of t churches will put these on their PTZ cameras if they've already made the investment and already have like six or seven of them. Then they'll just get these for underneath the places where they're on the second level and people up above are, are walking and creating some flex or some, some micro vibrations. This is, there's many, uh, if, you, if you Google uh, search just for uh, PTZ camera vibration, you'll find uh, other models that look this one's pretty expensive, but yeah, this is uh, what will help dampen those vibration uh, on a physical level. If you can't go ahead and and do some of the things that Alex described, good, Bill. So also realize that um, light stands are probably the lightest weight. C stands are the next step up, but there are steps above that, like the Matthews double riser stands and things like that that have a lot more heft to them. They are harder to to travel with. There, you know, you can throw them in a van, but they're just a lot more stable 
And so if you're in this a lot, you may want to invest in looking out in your used market or wherever uh, and figuring out, Rion, whether you can find some older, heavier grip, some of that from Matthews or um, – any of the other kind of serious grip companies, and that may take care of a lot of it. I mean, some of these, like the Matthews Low Boy Doubles, are are pretty hefty, and wind will not affect them as much. Next question. Uh, Greg Egan in Portland, Oregon is up next. 3D printing, what are you all printing, and what's your favorite creation? My son has mostly taken over my printer, <laughs> so so he, he prints a lot of stuff for school, um, you know, a variety of things that we that we work on there. Um, but he's figured out how to make all the things he wants. I'm in the process of printing out lot. I'm right now. I'm modeling, building very rough models, but to scale of my switcher and a couple other like this. This is I'm modeling this today. Just not the whole thing, just the base, so that I get this. I can measure it, but I I find it. I don't know. I like the photogrammetry part of it. So, so I'm modeling this as a as a base unit, um, and, and what I'm working on is basically building kind of a cockpit in front of me because everything's kind of just laid on the desk right now, and I want to kind of pull everything up a little bit and figure out exactly where it's going to go. Now, what am I going to do with it down the road? Probably make it out of metal or wood or something like that. But I want to play with it. The idea that I can I can make an adjustment, let it print overnight, and put it in um, is exciting to me. So I'm getting almost everything um, modeled. Uh, whether I'm measuring it or I'm uh, doing that over the over the next uh, couple of days or next week, and then I'm going to start slowly build out the cockpit, and then I'm going to that's going to help me figure out what I'm going to build at some point. Uh, uh, next question, Alan Cavito, Midlothian, Virginia. When I turn on an HDTV, I usually see 1080p for a few seconds. My brother claims that Comcast only transmits 720p video unless you pay for 4K. I thought my FiOS normally sent 1080p. What's the story on what gets sent by the major cable companies? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it depends on the cable company. I mean, each of them have their own standards. FiOS is pretty good about sending through uh, 4K, but here's your problem. Uh, broadcast ATSC stand, standards, like uh, yeah, ATSC, um, are 1080i or 720p. So chances are something's getting scaled somewhere. So that might be the delay you're seeing, uh, depending upon how the, the cable system works. And I can tell you with my DirecTV, uh, when 4K came along, there were only a few channels that were 4K. The rest of them were 1080p, uh, and they had to be doing some scaling or uh, up-resing to get it to there. And it's just a marketing scam in many cases. So they can say, I got 4K, but you got to get one of these two channels, and you're going to pay for them. Yeah, one of the problems that you have is that um, the the broadcasters are doing everything at 1080i. So they're not doing, t they tend to not, like Amazon actually is actually doing 4K. <laughs> I think that they're delivering 1080p. Um, but the but the rest of it is all, it's a 1080i production in general. And the issue is, is that what we learned a long time ago is that you can, um, it's, it's to de-interlace, to go to a progressive solution it's actually easier just to throw one of the fields away and scale the other field. So basically you're getting kind of a 960 by 540. So what we found is that 720 native is actually a higher resolution, you know, feels like it's sharper than 1080i that's been converted to progressive. So you'll either see the, the, um, the interlacing itself, or if they take that out, you're actually seeing something that's a little softer than, um, than, than, than the 720p. Go ahead, Jason. 4K is a resolution. Bitrate is champion. Doesn't matter how many pixels. The, the real end issue is that every single cable company 
compresses and steps on this channel um, or, you know, the one channel that you're listening to and watching in order to get everything else in there. Yeah. And, and um, it's a really a, I mean, the problem for broadcast is they just don't have the money to upgrade anymore. Like they're never going to, and they're never going to, so they're never going to go up. I mean, I I'd be surprised if it goes up to 1080, I pass 1080i for most broadcasts ever, because I don't think broadcast will survive long enough to make the conversion. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Alec, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the new standard for television broadcast is ATSC 3, and 3 is 4K. But as, as you just said, they would have to completely rebuild their control rooms and infrastructure yeah. uh, from 1080 up to 4K, and they're already suffering uh, financial losses. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the hard part is that they're already under, you know, they're, they're in a sinking ship, you know, and they're, and they're trying to, uh, and so as we move uh, completely to streaming, which will probably happen over the next decade, um, the, uh, you'll see higher resolutions because they, it's, then it's, you're just flipping bits. You know, you're not right now to deliver 10, 8, uh, 4K to your set. It requires going through all this hardware and all of that hardware, if any one piece of hardware is not that size. And so it's, it's not millions, it's billions of dollars that would be required to make that adjustment, which would be possible if it was still growing, a growing market. But it's not a growing market. It's, it's, it's now down, I think, 30% over the last five years. You know, so the viewership on it is just taking a dive um, as, as people start to get used to not having ads. <laughs> you know, like, and so, and, and, and there's just no, like, interruptions of ads is, is just a, um, a, a dying thing. You know, and so, so I think that the, uh, so I think that that's going to be the, the challenge that they have. And so you probably shouldn't, should, and this is also why people like me don't have, you know, don't watch cable like this, that earlier conversation of how do I get audio into the Apple TV or, or whatever. That's why we don't do that is because then I'd have to watch ads every 15 minutes and that'd be, that's insanity or eight, eight minutes or whatever. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. What courses would you recommend for learning how to develop applications with a large language model? Would this be a good start? And he's comfortable with Python, and he's got a link there to a Python boot camp. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was I, I don't know anything about programming, so let me just start off there. But I do have friends who do, and I was actually in Cupertino recently, and I was talking with a friend, Dr. Greg Smith, who is a developer and uh, works with us a lot. And I just asked him uh, at lunch for the heck of it. So uh, what are you working in now? What language? And he said, I switched almost entirely to Swift. And I know they're developing iOS apps and things like that. So I just out of curiosity, when I saw this question come through, I said, is Swift good for AI? And popped me right to GitHub with an incredible group of libraries that you can work in Swift directly with AI things. So I would think maybe that, although again, I am not a programmer. I'm just based on what friends who know way more about this stuff than I do have suggested to me recently. Uh, I, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I would I would do a lot of research on the chat GPT, um, the, new, the new API stuff that they're doing. Um, I don't know if there's art. I, I think that the Right now, you're in that world where the advantage is that you can get into it right now and, and start to play with it. The disadvantage is you have to be able to bootstrap yourself. You know, you, it's mostly, you know, you're going to read a bunch of stuff on the web. You're going to do stuff. And that's, it's a harder time to get in. But it is, you know, the field is fairly opened and green. I, you know, a lot of us that were working on Star Wars in 19, I mean, I, I got hired to work on Star Wars when I was 26 years old because I had hacked my way through that stuff. I didn't take any classes. I hadn't known any, you know, didn't know any things. You know, I just, I just worked my way through it. You can't do that now. <laughs> like, you know, you can't, you know, generally you're going to, you're, you're pretty, you know, the kids who 
take, get a 26-year-old or 24-year-old or 23-year-old to get a job at ILM or Lucasfilm, went to a school for it. You know, like, and, and there's, and they are much better. They're 10 times what I was when I was, when I was hired, um, you know, as far as their knowledge base. And so that's, it's harder to get in now. So the time to get in is right now, but you may not be able to find a course on it. You may have to just figure it out. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. How did we end up with a 23.98 frames per second used in film editing editing on analog video formats? And do we still need to know these oddities of editing? Uh, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yeah, I see Bill smiling. Uh, Bill understands the uh, headaches that are caused by mismatched frame rates. But uh, the reason that we have this problem is it doesn't work mathematically to divide 24 into a, a broadcast broadcast standard, especially if you're going up to 60 minutes for a, a program. Therefore, they invented drop frame, non-drop, and some frames have to be uh, uh, held out in order to make the math work right. But it, it's a mathematical problem. Uh, yeah, and the frame rate and drop frame are a different world but but it's it's two different you know two two things is because drop frame and is a is a time code uh is a time code issue which doesn't have to do with the frame rate the 2398 to 24 is a frame rate change um yeah go ahead bill yeah they don't drop frames in time code they drop frame numbers uh but here nor there Originally, the problem, the reason we got into 2996 and 24976 and all the rest of these was because when they bolted color onto black and white video back in the early days, there were some anomalies that they had to deal with mathematically. And it ended up being that these numbers worked for engineering, not for anyone's common sense. So it's a deep rabbit hole. If you want to look back in to what, you know, if you just pop into Google, why 29.976, you will get all sorts of reading. You will spend a whole Saturday afternoon perusing why it happened. There were technical reasons that are perfectly valid in the old days of broadcast, and that got carried into the new days of non-broadcast, and we're still dealing with it today. And I can't tell the story completely, but someone has, who was there, you know, who was there when it happened in the room where it happened, said that it also has to do with how uh, Avid handled, specifically 2398 had to do with, there was an opportunity to go to 24, and it was and Avid was handling its audio pipeline in a specific way and the way the timing worked. Um, there was a misunderstanding of how that timing should work that ended up causing this to, to occur. And so um, anyway, I, I'll, I'll try to get the whole story for you. It, it was explained to me once, but I'm afraid that I had... It was a long night. So anyway, so we, it was explained to me exactly what happened from someone who was there giving them the corrections of this is what the problem is with your timing. and they ended, But it ended up just pouring concrete into it, and that was it. Next question. David in London is up next with, is using a 20-inch or 50-centimeter lantern light modifier above a two-person interview setup in a small space with an Amrand 100D light sufficient? I read directing the lantern straight across creates a hot spot. Does this hold true when positioning down from above? Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, uh, positioning it from above is what I see a lot of people doing for these kind of smaller interview setups. And one of the best things is when you're not pointing it directly at your subjects, your that hot spot is going directly on the table in front of them, and they get kind of that like soft glow uh, off the side of it. So. I think it's, you know, a, for a very quick setup, um, that's definitely something you can get away with. And I mean, right now I'm being lit with a uh, Amaran 200, but I think it's only at like 50% power right now. So uh, it's going to be more than enough light for a two-person interview. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Guy. 
Yeah, with these single large chip on board lights, a lot of times when you put them inside of a lantern, it's definitely going to make the light softer. But because of the nature of that light, it does it can create a uh, a hot spot. Uh, this uh, uh, question earlier about uh, which light to get for Black Friday, uh, Brandon had recommended that F twenty two X, and they actually have it today. Uh, this is a heck of a deal. Um, Five fifty nine with the lantern. So this is normally a seven hundred ninety nine dollar light just by itself. So if you can get two, that's ideal. I happen to have that light right here. So this is these are amazing because they they fold down so tiny. I mean this to to travel with this thing is amazing. And uh, you get it's a big controller and you can hook up V mounts to it. But basically it's it's a uh, like having four one by ones in a suitcase. So. I'd recommend taking a look at that uh, F22X on on sale today. Good, Bill. I'm going bold. Lighting is like cooking, right? You start with a piece of protein or a, something else, a piece of tofu, whatever. And so that's the base. And that is your emitter, some sort of emitter. It can be a panel. It can be a single source. It can be anything. That's your, that's your source. Then you've got spices, which are like uh, your modifiers and the things that take the original thing and turn it into something that is better so that it's more tasty. And then you've got all the physics of distance from the subject. How big is your subject? How far is the light from it? How big is the emitter and the interplay of all these things? And that's the chef's skill part of it. You can give the same piece of equipment or three pieces of equipment to three different people and you can get three different results in lighting because of that need to balance things. You have to look at how much ambient light am I starting with? What do I need to do? Do I need to separate them from the, the background? And how? Will I do that with different luminance levels or will I do it with something else like changing out the background and putting a different background behind it? This is That's the reason I find it so exciting to work in this field of creating imagery it's because there's an endless variety and what helps you be really good at it is time experimenting and understanding the basics, but then making your own food. And that's why you pay chefs a lot more than you pay a short order cook in a Denny's. Yeah, the uh, um, I've done a lot. Not that there's anything wrong with being a short order cook in a Denny's. Excuse me. I just didn't want to I didn't want to <laughs> diminish that. That is a hard I, I thing to like, do. I happen to like I, I, and I'm, I'm a diner guy. So, so yeah, to so me, I, you know, keep it simple. Totally. Um, and I'm, I'm, I have to admit that I'm a bit of a diner guy when it comes to lighting as well. Like I like it to be very simple and, and, uh, and where, it, but I've done a lot in this, in the lantern area. Um, 20 inches to me would be a little small. Um, a lot of times I'm looking for 36 or, you know, those 24 to 36 uh, inch, which you can get paper lanterns that you can put in there if you want to, like big round balls, which we then sometimes hang stuff over top of it. Um, but these lanterns, um, I would get bigger lanterns uh, in that in that area. And we've used them a lot. I've actually used, I had a, if you go back and look at the Final Cut user group, what you'll see there is a six foot uh, Air Star which is we used it for other things, but we used it for a lot of these conversations. Um, and um, and uh, and what we what was really nice about that was that it just feels like you're at someone's living room. Like that's how it feels. And that's the feel that we wanted. It's not for everything. If you're trying to, there's a lot of reasons to not do that and to do other things. But I really enjoyed this feel like we're all just sitting around a table at a living room in someone in some at someone's house. And that's what it reminded me of. And I just love that 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 um, feeling. And so uh, if you like that feeling, if that's what you're looking for, is, again, you get these larger, kind of larger um, uh, ones that uh, the 20 is a little bit saucy, in my opinion. Um, and so, and, but, I, but I just saw, and I think it was, 
I just saw behind the scenes, I think it was 60 minutes like a week or two ago where they were doing this lantern. They, they had dropped a lantern over top of them because I, I looked at the lighting. And I was like, wow, that's really soft. <laughs> you know, like that's the, for, for, for 60 minutes. Now, what they did do is they had some really small lights that were kind of off frame that were just doing little hair lights. And that's a lot of times what you do is you kind of grab onto the, you give them a little bit of, a, of an edge um, to separate them out. But it, the key is to keep that really subtle so it doesn't feel like you're giving an edge. You're trying, but you're not trying. I'll go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, and one of the cool things, so Aperture, um, I don't have it pulled up on my screen right now, but their lanterns that they use actually use a lot of uh, Beauty Dish principles. So they have a actual like diffusion disc that goes in the middle of the lantern before it actually gets to the like softbox outside of it. Um, so even those like smaller ones, you're going to get a pretty disproportionately like soft light. Um, and a lot of sets I've been on recently, they use them as like the fill light for the rest of the room because it's kind of like, you know, umbrella of, you know, back in the day where it's kind of just a, you know, spilling light everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Next question. John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma says, how do you manage all the various battery chargers? Mount them in a static location, take them out and plug them in as needed? Uh, in a production, there's usually a table for it. <laughs> like we usually have a table of lots of different things that are uh, that are there. One of the things that we definitely got into was making sure that uh, there was a, a lot of phone chargers. Um, interestingly enough, we like to put our producers near that near that table, and it, it's not because they need it; it's because it brings everybody that's important over to that one table because they realize there's free charging, and so you end up with lots of clients and lots of the clients' friends, and you know everybody else all wanders over there. Uh, the only thing I would say is tape the uh, uh, tape the phone charger cables to the chargers. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, plus one on what Alex said. Um, in short, if it depends on the nature of the charger and the nature of the venue, um, how and the way that you're working. I tend to use um, two by two pieces of plywood and I just, I align what I need, get screws, shoot them in, and then just basically force mount, especially for like, you know, the larger charge battery things so that I, I can run the cables very nicely and I only have one plug in. And very, and what I will say is that the um, uh, that you know we usually keep the chargers in the in the divisions that they need. So the audio chargers are usually somewhere in the audio department, the video, you know, the V mounts or the or the Anton Bowers or where they need to be. So it's this. I'm just talking about general charging. The other thing to look at is um, for international. We have some international. I don't think I have any within my arms reach, but I have some international strips that have all of the different plugging up, op- almost all the different plug-in options that you could have in the world, uh, all in one, each one of them is all of them. So when we're overseas, a lot of times we put those up and they're very popular. Um, you can get them with a, um, with a C13 input so that just like your, your computer or whatever. And so you do that, you tape that to it. But that means you can go to any hardware store in the country that you're in and plug that in, plug it into the wall, and now it's there for everybody who needs it. So those are, you know, that's that's uh, one option. The other ones in the United States, uh, I, I, I don't know where we get them, but you see them everywhere. They're, they've got doubles down the center, and then they've got ones that turn on the outside. <laughs> we use those a lot. I can't remember who makes them, but I see them everywhere I go. It's, it's, it's like the, probably the most popular uh, power strip that I've ever seen in any, any place of these ones that – have a strip down the center and then they've got ones that that rotate up and down on the on the sides. Yeah, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, and I mean also uh getting as many things over to USB-C as possible. I will spend inordinate amounts of money on things as long as I can charge it over USB-C and even those small rig batteries that you were talking about earlier. One of the biggest things that drew me to them was the fact that I could just charge them over USB-C. 
um, which means I have to, you know, keep track of less variation of battery chargers. Uh, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is the one that this is the style. This is not the one that we, that I've that are, that is the most popular. But what I'm talking about is is uh, is let's see here. This is this is it here. Um, the uh, that but that kind of thing is the kind of thing we see we see a fair bit of. I can't find the exact style right now quickly off of Amazon. By the way, a question for the for the panelists and for for, for people who are there, uh, people who are watching. Do the black levels on this screen share look any better than they did yesterday? There were some complaints about the black levels being the blacks being crushed on the last one, and I did some work over that yesterday. That looks Give pretty solid to that me. It looks pretty good to me too. Yeah, I'm yeah, getting it's a, a little a softer, but it looks scale. fine. Um, oh, so it might be soft, but I'm talking about just about the black levels. Yeah, um, fine. yeah, yeah. So they look better, don't they? Yeah. So, so what I did to do that is just just as a little aside. I took this little this little guy here. So this is the data color Spider X, yeah, Spider uh, Spider X, yeah, Elite or whatever. Anyway, I um, yeah, it doesn't look like the typical crush, and and the reason I did that was what I did is I took the monitor. I took the QuickTime and I made it full full screen. So I took the QuickTime that's getting the feed from the switcher. I ran it into QuickTime and it looked crushed. Then I moved it over to the screen and I went full screen. So I'm actually looking in that screen. I'm looking through the um, I'm looking through the UBC into the QuickTime, and then I. I hung the data color over it and hit it, hit, hit go, <laughs> you know, just, and so then it did the, it did the, it did the correction to the monitor based on the UVC output to the QuickTime. Um, and so that's the, I, and I, I'd done that before, but with a different one and it was, this was a much more elegant way to do it. The last time I did it, it was harder. Anyway, so that's, that's my tip if you, if you, I, uh, but that's what I was um, curious about. I think I've made some progress there. I don't know if it's perfect, but I think it's better than it was before. So I absolutely think you did because that uh camera shot that I showed really got crushed a lot a couple of days yeah, so, ago. And this so that's looks using the spider better. That's using the spider X um over top of it. It it is um uh so it's spider X the QuickTime is getting the feed, the 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 BMD feed full screen. If you don't do it full screen, it'll it'll do a video loop. <laughs> so you have to do it full screen so it acts like that. And uh, and then that, that seemed to work pretty well. Next question. Robert Sababidi in Poland says, any suggestions to protect XLR cables that have to run under a doorway? Right, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Robert, let me commend you for protecting your XLR cables because it can be a problem when somebody rolls over it with a big cart or walks on it with uh, some cleats. They make these uh, flexible rubber thresholds you can put in the doorways that have guides built underneath them. And what you do is you place the cable inside the guides and you flip it over and set it in the threshold or the area where there's some traffic. And it generally protects the, I said generally, protects the uh, cable underneath it. Um, it's never going to protect the actual connector, but as long as the cable is there in the channel, you're good to go. Good, Bill. And forever, we've used gaffers tape. There's a there's all sorts of videos on YouTube about how to lay a central strip and then side strips and things like that to keep people from catching it. A couple of the rules: you never want to put uh, low voltage signal cables like XRL running parallel to power cables and things like that. Also, there are more things like this out there that I'm finding more interesting, and it seems like it's really a lot easier. It's kind of a Velcro tunnel that you can just slap down over something for a lightweight doorway that's not having a thousand people come through it. I might 
give something like that a try. If you want to get up to the big guns, uh, there are all sorts of plastic uh, cable things. Yellow Jacket's a common name. Those are the kind of the industrial even if somebody decides to do the merengue on top of your cables, that the cables will not get touched because they're really, really rigid and solid. But they're more of a pain to get out to site. Yeah, um, there was a question uh, that that in the in the uh, chat about about the uh, X, flat XLRs. But the problem is the XL, the nature of XLRs is that they have to be twisted. <laughs> they have to go together. They have to go together for a balanced cable. Um, so I've never seen them flat. What we do, what we have done in ones where the, there's a really tight registration of the of the of the uh, um, of the door is we run a full sized uh, XLR and then we go to thinner ones and then back up to the thick ones. Um, it's not as good um, as as running it through, but sometimes we've needed to do that to get underneath something that we needed to to work through. Uh, the problem with things like yellow jackets, of course, it's not going to go under the under the thing. So you really. Um, we the one thing we do is we will run them right next to each other very very carefully. Uh, in general, what we try to do is keep all of our XLR cables, all our cables in general, in a, in pathways that stay the same all the way through their run. Um, that way, we can look at the third one over and know what that is, as opposed to having them kind of clumped up or going over top of each other. So, um, and as Bill said, if we're going to run both power and XLRs uh, through a doorway, uh, we'll run it. We'll run the signal on one side of the doorway and the power on the other side of the doorway so that they're not they're usually I try to get at least uh, uh, two feet between uh, them if they're going to cross you need to cross at 90 degrees now go ahead, Jason yeah all, all of that is really good advice and as far as how beefy the the infrastructure is it just depends are you trying to get rid of trip or is it really just protecting the cable um, mm -hmm. you know and are, are carts going to go over this that matters a lot and then the other thing is, is that I rarely run long XLRs anymore. So that the other thing to kind of keep in mind is that we're using Dante or, Dante. You know, or other things like that. So we're using IP-based solutions to get from one place to the other. So it is pretty rare to see. I mean, if I'm throwing something down for and it's and I haven't really, it's not got budget. Uh, if it doesn't have budget, then I might throw some longer cables down and, and use them. It's mostly my own little projects, but almost all of my projects. Um, use Ethernet at this point, you know, and and um, and so that's the that's kind of the way we kind of, um, and then that's a lot easier. You can get flat. You can get all kinds of things with with Ethernet that you can't get with uh, um, uh, with with audio cables, and you you don't have to worry about power being next to it. All those things. So um, we we just we just found that that eliminated an enormous amount of the buzz <laughs> that we would get out of things and noise and everything else. Uh, it was just just to have an Ethernet, and then we can. It's pretty easy for us to run two different routes. Um, via Dante to that to that process. Um, next question. Paul Wallace in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Today, Courtney, I have a single-story home and need two robust Wi-Fi and external routers. What make model would you use ideally and also most cost-effective? And sadly, Cor Courtney isn't here with us today. Go ahead, uh, Guy. I wish I could even impersonate Courtney's voice. I would have went for it, but I, I realized <laughs> I couldn't do that. But I'll try to answer the technical part. Um, I just wouldn't waste my time with any of the consumer stuff. Uh, knowing you, Paul, you don't want to go down and be stuck. So what we use, uh, the, these can go in homes, but these are a commercial product. This is the Unify Dream Machine with some access points. Now that what you get with this system is you get control. So you can change channels. So if you have interference from like your neighbors or something like that, uh, you could change the channels. Um, there's all kinds of strengths, things that you can go around and see. Um, as you position these, um, uh, which channel width works better, transmit power, there's meshing, band steering, 
there's just so much fine tuning and granular control that you can have over using a, a unified dream machine. Now you will need uh, a POE uh, adapter, which is included in some of the APs, or you need a switch that'll give you POE. Cause these, these, uh, access points, uh, you don't want to have to plug them into the wall. So they will get, they will get POE over a single cable. And some of the other ones that I have have dual. So this is one, what the nano that has, uh, just a single cable, but you can get one that has dual. But I wouldn't waste my time with the, the knowing what you do, Paul. You just don't want to go down, and I've seen it happen with with people that use cheap stuff, and then it goes down right at the worst time. It happened to one of my good friends, and he wound up getting the exact same system that I have, and he's solid now. There you go, John. Plus well, one on what Guy just said. I just spent five minutes trying a topology map and sent it to you on Discord, Paul. Go, Jason. Um, okay, if you're going to go consumer, go with the very high-end Eros, and you're going to spend some money. I think that Guy's solution is the better one. Do not get the cheaper Ubiquity stuff. You're going to hate yourself. Yeah, I, I, I think as someone who did go through something that, that we thought would be easier, that someday I'll actually unwind again <laughs> when I stop buying cameras. Um, the uh, you know I think that get, getting the Dream Machine and getting a couple of those, and re- really what you're looking for, I think, is a a good router, the dream machine and a bunch of switch and some switches and some, and some, you know, you're not looking for, don't, don't do two routers. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Robert Sabati. He's back from Poland with any recommendations for a short throw projector to use in a conference room that has a four meter by three meter screen. Uh, if you're looking for ultra, I, I guess the question is, are you looking for short throw or ultra short throw? So short throw is, I'm gonna. I'm gonna only go. I only have to throw it eight feet or something. Ultra ultra is at the bottom of the screen. Um, I don't know a lot of ultra ultra um, short throws that will cover um, that size of a screen. I think you may be looking for a short throw. In either case, um, I would probably lean towards Epson. Epson's got a lot of great great ones in that in that field. Um, I think they do it. I think they do that type of projector uh, more effectively than. Uh, than, than most other people. So there's a lot of other projectors as you go into longer, like more medium and long throw um, that, that you may want to look at. But I think Epson does a really good job at the short and ultra short range. Uh, next question. Tony Mobley, our friend, is back from Newman in Georgia with could the panel talk more about ESET protection for your computers? I can't because I don't, I don't know what ESET protection is. So... And we're going to try to find this really quickly. I'm afraid. That this okay, I got reason. it. Um, ESET is essentially just a micro insurance policy. Um, these are, you know, extended warranties that just about every third party retailer is just starting uh, to add to um, to sales. If I'm thinking the right thing. If if that's the actual case, I mean, the only warranty, I, the only one I extend is Apple Care. I mean, because it's the one that is, uh, you know, I buy every piece of piece Apple hardware. I just assume I'm going to get it. Um, uh, but I don't have any, uh, but I don't do anybody else's cause they're mostly a bunch of <laughs> shyster deals. I, I go ahead, uh, Jason. Um, another possibility. So ESET does make antivirus. It's a Hungarian company that does antivirus. Um, if that's what you're thinking about, Tony, I think it's overkill. Um, unless you are in very rare cases that I don't think that you are, but yeah, as a rule, if you want to insure your computer, um, check with your homeowner. Like you, you can actually get pretty good insurance on just about anything if you call them up and ask. Yeah, I, I am. If you're using a Mac, I, I don't, I don't see a lot of. Don't reasons. put it on a Mac. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, don't. I mean, and I don't want to. I don't want to be location based controls, but I would not put an antivirus software from uh, from another country on my 
you know, on my, on my computer. That's, it's crazy. What? There's some good cheap Russian stuff. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No, next question. Next question. Henry Ramos of Yonkers, New York says, bought a simple four channel audio Balin analog XLR to Ethernet snake that specifies Cat 6. Is Cat 5 E okay? Does it really make a difference? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's all analog, so you're not getting the benefits of IP based uh, Ethernet cable. It's just a transformer and the Balin there. Um, yeah, it probably does if you're going to do a long run. A 5E will work uh, just as well as a 5 if the long, if the run is shorter. So if you expect a long run and you're near stuff that might be a problem, it's all in the twist and the wires that's in there, and 6 is a better twist like oh, I did last summer. I think this makes a huge, massive, can't emphasize it enough difference in the in, in the way that this works. I would go with CAT 7. Analog Balins for audio is a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think that I would. I would. I would stick with. I, I have to admit that I would. I would definitely um, not go very far with what you're doing. Like I, I don't just. I just don't know how what the run is. Um, so uh, so yeah. I wouldn't. Uh, I, you know, it's. I we've used these when we have uh, some channels that we want to pop into something that is going about this far, about six, about three, four inches. Uh, and then it goes just spinning out to analog. But I've never used them for any kind of run. And I, it seems like a lot of trouble. Like I would definitely not do that. Um, uh, next question. Robert Sabobody back from Poland with Spider X came up a minute ago. What does it do? And when do you need it? Go ahead, Jason. Glad you asked, Robert. Um, uh, Spider X. So Alex said Spider X Elite. Um, the Spider X is actually the same device, and the the Elite part has to do with the software that you bought with it. You can upgrade if you want to, and it it just expands the flexibility and use case for the device. So there's. Uh, go ahead. Just just because I have it sitting in front of me, <laughs> um, the uh, so basically it pops open like this. Um, and this is a, there's a couple things. There's a sensor on top. So you set this on your desk to get your, um, to get the ambient of your, of your space. And then there's a bigger sensor that's here. And then you take, you, you pull this apart and you use this to hang it over your monitor and it'll give you a, an image that you, it says, hang it right over this place. It actually changes the color of the whole monitor. I don't know if it really matters, but it gives you a place to go. And so you hang it over that and then you tell it, the target, you know, your target brightness and so on and so forth, and you hit go, and um, uh, and it will just it, it'll it'll ask you, you know, are you using uh, a wide wide gamut or SDR? You know, you'll make some decisions there, and then you hit go, and it, what it does is start showing it different colors. So what it's doing is it's telling the monitor, this is the color I think I'm seeing, and then it's reading that color, <laughs> you know, and seeing if, if that's what it's getting. And so then what it does is it builds an ICC uh, color profile for um, your monitor and loads it in. And so with all my monitors here, I have, I put it on all of them. I, I went ahead and recalibrated them. They hadn't been recalibrated in a long time because I was doing this one thing, which is trying to fix the blacks on my, on my screen craft. <laughs> so anyway, so the, um, uh, so anyway, so that's what it, it does monitor calibration and it does a pretty good job. I mean, I, I think that it's when you put it on a bunch of screens, if you've got four or five screens on the same computer and you put them on, I don't know if it's perfectly accurate, but they're all the same. <laughs> like, you know, like they, they all, when you move it, move it from one to the next, they all look like they belong together. So, um, so it's, it's, it's good at kind of standardizing what you're, what you're looking at. And it, it, you know, I definitely fixes a lot of color shifts that your, that your monitors may have. Yeah. Go ahead, Jason. So if you think about, um, 
if you think about a spider in terms of LUTs, it's basically building a LUT for a monitor like you would you would build yeah. a LUT for a camera. Well, and I have to admit, going down this rabbit hole of trying to fix this black thing, this is what happens. By the way, when you when you make comments on this show, this is the proof that I, de- I definitely listened because it was bothering me a little bit, but I was like, I don't know if it really matters if I'm crushing the blacks. And then someone complains about it and then it becomes like three hours of my of my Thanksgiving day was like working on, on getting this all figured out. Anyway, so, so, um, uh, so anyway, the, uh, but I am now the rabbit hole, a part of those three hours was researching a conversion tool and there it appears to be some conversion tools to convert LUTs. They're so close together. They're just a format difference, uh, converting LUTs to color ICCs. That means that I could go into resolve and fix it, fix the capture <laughs> and then save out a 3D LUT and then convert it to an ICC profile, which I'm working on. Uh, I haven't never done that before. So we'll, we'll, but I'll report back to you once I've figured out. We, we have a show planned later in December for uh, LUTs in general. And so I'll probably use, probably talk about it then. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from... Um Brett Bailu in Wisconsin, Appleton, Wisconsin, chiming in about Ubiquity's access points. It's important to note that some newer APs like the Unify 6 Pro will require higher powered 48 point, a 48 volt power over Ethernet injectors than the previous or lower end models, such as the AC Pro. Go, Jason. Yes, you're correct, but be very careful here. So um, it's it's not actually the 48 volt that is the old 48 volt. This is a variant of PoE plus or plus plus or, you know, again, start with this stuff because the oldest version of PoE was actually just a straight 48 volts down. The modern stuff actually asks for what it needs and that gets into power budgets with the switches. So just be careful. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Hamza in Marrakesh, Morocco. Has anyone used the open MPTCP router to aggregate WAN wide area network connections? If so, any gotchas regarding video streaming and remote audio setups? I haven't. I'm actually interested in it. This is new to us, but I will tell you that um, aggregating WAN connections will work fine uh, or can work fine when it comes to doing uh, streaming. So if you're aggregating those and you have enough buffer, you're going to be able to collect all those on the other side and it's going to work fine. The, um, uh, the, but I think that the challenge you get into is any kind of real time. So WebRTC, other things like that. Um, anything that has real time connections, those bonds create a much higher level of jitter and that jitter affects the quality of the signal. And this is all the stuff we were talking about a little earlier. Even with SRT, you can have issues. I think the SRT may get corrected if you turned up the, the buffer a little bit, but I think that that would be, um, you know, that'd be something to think about there, but it should work fine for, again, so for streaming, but for remote studio setups, if you're looking for two-way communication, I would not bond your WAN connections um, on, on any platform. And uh, I think Marrakesh, this, you're the first question from Marrakesh, Morocco. I believe so. Um, I've never it's read on that my bucket list, um, Hamza, of places that I want to visit. <laughs> so, so anyway, so hopefully you stick around and we'll get to know each other and maybe I'll come visit because <laughs> I really want to go to Marrakesh. It just looks like such an amazing city. Um, we had a remote event done there where I had, we had people on the ground there, but I didn't get to go. I had to sit on the other side and just watch how much fun everybody was having. Anyway, next question. Tony Mobley out of Newton in Georgia is back again. Are there any ATA mini deals? He hasn't seen any this year. 
I haven't seen any. You know, I think that you don't get very large deals from Black Magic because I don't think they have that much margin. <laughs> like, I don't think, they, you know, they, they keep the prices so low for themselves. You know, they're always trying to make it as affordable as possible. There's just not a lot of room there um, to uh, for them to squeeze down. They can't give you 50% off because that means they'd be paying you uh, to buy their, their hardware. I mean, they, just, they just don't run at those margins. Go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yeah, BSW is selling it for 17% off. Seventeen. That means BSW is just trying to bring you in. That's probably that's most of their most of their budget. It's not all of it, but it's probably most of their margin. Uh, uh, that yeah. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Loop Flow 2.0 is a free After Effects plugin to animate flowing objects on static images. For example, rocket exhaust or a waterfall. Outside of Adobe, are there any standalone AI apps or services that generate this effect for images? There was one on the iPhone, and I don't know if they stuck around, but there was an animated one that was built for this, and they were really going down this path of promoting it. But I don't know what happened to them. Um, but there used to be a um, – I want to call it – I don't think it's Enlighten because I think Enlighten is a different a – different, uh, but there was they, – they were trying to build kind of a social network of making these move. And every time you saw it, it was really cool. But then you never got around to actually making one. <laughs> like you were like, this looks really great. I should do this everywhere. And then you never did. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. There, what is the name of – when you take a static picture and you put like if it's got a waterfall and the waterfall is moving, nothing else is. Live um, photo. A, pardon me? Live photo. Okay. Yeah. But there's a, there's a name for the style of, uh, of using it. It's kind of the rage in some areas. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just haven't – you see it every once in a while, but I, I just don't see it – yeah, I don't see it regularly. Um, next question. A former panelist that we haven't seen in a while, Laura Seal in Greensboro, North Carolina, says, need to take my ATEM Extreme SDI out of its 6U rack case and put it in something more portable for air travel. Any recommendations for a pre-built solution such as a Pelican case? He does, she doesn't have time to build. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jason. SKB, I believe, makes a 4RU case that pulls out of an SKB case. I prefer Pelican to SKB, but um, I, I think that their stuff is is like very designed to be easy and fast and cheap. Yeah, and I, I, I'm not sure if you're trying to um, keep it wired up or whether you're just trying to pull it out and take it with you. Um, there are some companies that make covers for them. You can find them on Amazon that, that make plastic covers that go over top of all the of all of the things. And I don't know if they go over the SDI on the other side because the one that I have, not right at my fingertips, but I have one for my Mini Extreme. It just goes over the top. It's just like on a, a top cover um, to um, to make that happen. So so yeah, that's the the only one that I know of. Go ahead, guy. Yeah, if you have the original box, I would just put it back in its original box and ship it that way. Uh, I mean, it's form-fitted foam, and we shipped uh, thousands of those things with not any damage. So I would just put it, this is why I say boxes like that. Uh, but otherwise, just wrap it in, in a bubble wrap and put it in foam inside of a Pelican case, and that'll travel well. Yeah, I mean, what, what I've done with a lot of things like this in the past, the smaller one, the smaller ATEM, but not the extreme, there's a case cover for that as well. And what I did is I popped the case cover on top of it. And then I have these Domkey makes these wraps that are, and I have a couple different sizes of them. I had a big Domkey wrap and I just wrapped it around it. So I kind of protected everything else uh, with that wrap. Um, and uh, in some cases we've taken foam and just put it on the end where all the connectors are. So it's like a little strip of foam that we just push, put it, put against it, put some gaff tape across it. And that means the, the, if, if you have the cover and then those covered and then you wrap it up, 
it's, I mean, you have to, if you put it in with your, in your suitcase, it's going to go fine. <laughs> if you send it on its own, it's not going to go fine. Um, then you want to go back to its case. Yeah. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah. Just a last note to, to end it out there. Uh, Deck Saver is the company we're talking about. They make covers for absolutely everything. And they have a big Black Friday thing going on right now. Next question. Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. What movie was the last movie in a theater you started to watch and something happened to cause you to walk out before it ended? What movie and what happened? Go ahead, Mitchell. Early 70s, uh, The Exorcist. I literally, I was by myself, didn't have anybody else to play off of. I got up and walked out. And then I told myself, if I don't go back in there and watch what happens, um, I'll never be able to face this kind of movie again. It was just, it just scared me to the core. Um, some years later, I ran into Linda Blair at a club, and um, I did a little bit from the movie, and she didn't think it was very funny, and I got thrown out of the club. <laughs> right, Bill. Whoa. Um, I never actually left one, I don't think, because if it's really that terrible, I figure I can go to school on this and try to figure out what did they do to make this movie as bad as it is. The one I came closest to was the original National Treasure, and I think it was the moment they uh, – stuck the torch into the obviously now 200-year-old thing, and it instantly lit up and went through everywhere. And I thought, that's interesting fuel source that yeah. can sit outside, exposed to the air for 200 years, and instantly light up the entire set no, in just two seconds. To, you, just have, you, have, you have to suspend disbelief. I mean, you know, it's That's not a like, lot of disbelief <laughs> to suspend. Go, go ahead, guy. I just wanted to congrat congratulate Chester on the most downvoted question ever with negative. Yet we still got it. We, yeah, we still got to it. We still we still got to it. Yeah. So and it was a good. You know, I think that it, it it fit as a near the end of the hour kind of fun social discussion about what we did there. Um, the um, uh, I, I beat me. I had the record before that. I had a couple. Like I, I think I have most of the top ten of negative voted uh questions and so so that we still get to them um the um uh the um what was i gonna say i've never walked out of a movie like if i move if i if i if i sit there i'll sit through the movie um and i'll you know again i'll, I'll kind of there's definitely movies i felt like i wanted my two hours back um but i but i didn't leave i think it's something about paying for it that i just kind of like well i'm gonna sit through this there's definitely movies that I've stopped watching. I think JJ mentioned one one of them. I got about twenty five percent into boxing Helena, and I was like, "Nope." <laughs> like, like, I was just like, "I was just like, this is this is not my cup of tea." And 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 I'm not a big horror film guy, um, you know, because my mind is too it, it, it can attach to things too too effectively, and so I tend to not watch horror films. I go ahead, Jason. Um, I think I've only ever walked out of one movie, and um. If you've ever seen the first three minutes of the movie Bruno, I felt like the joke was on me. And I'm like, yeah. all right, enough. Uh, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yeah, Alex, I agree with you on horror movies. They they can, if you're open to it, it's a bad door to have open. Yeah. Um, actually, there is a movie I walked out of and didn't go back into. Um, way back when, when they had Sense Around, I went to see Earthquake starring Charlton Heston. And when the uh, earthquake started happening, um, it was very authentic, including parts of the ceiling started coming down in the old theater I was at. And I said, this is not a place that you want to be uh, with that like kind a, of rumbling going. As I walked out, I said, I'm not going in there. Nothing like a, a great LFE. Uh, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah. I mean, similarly to you, Alex, I have also never walked out of a movie, but about probably 20, 30 minutes into uh, the new Avatar movie, I was just blown away by the spectacle. Story was neither here nor there, but... Uh, I was just 
I was taking in every single bit of, you know, all of the new technology they were using in it. And it was just absolutely phenomenal. I do, I do admit the newest one, the, 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 the second avatar, uh, definitely kept me in because I was looking at the textures and the models and everything else. I, I didn't, there was, there's there a couple of places where it jumped the shark a little too far. Like, of, of this is an obvious plot manipulation to create something later. And you could see it while it was happening. And you were just like, really? Like, <laughs> Exactly. Anyway, so 100%. you're going to go all the way to hide and then you're going to come up over the radar. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael. Blackmagic Design is selling the ATEM Television Studio HD8 at 30% off for one week only. Do you think that the Rack AT Atoms are selling better? Well, that's 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 pretty cool. Um, you know, for one week only. Okay, so we do have a we have a sale, and that usually means we're clearing the <laughs> we're clearing the deck. You know, so that's a, that's a clear the deck kind of like, hey, we've got a bunch of stuff in here. So what I would say is that usually th- makes me think that December or January there's new hardware. Um, you know, that's usually what I would read that as. Um, so that'll be interesting. Um, next question. Uh, Doug, uh, Robert Soji in Los Angeles. Can you recommend the best way to learn audio editing methods in Final Cut Pro? Thanks. Uh, go ahead, Bill. So Final Cut Pro in this era has always been a bit of a lift for traditional editors because it does not operate or think the same way. It was the first program I ever ran into that the entire thing was a process of uh, – a unique way of expressing metadata against an original pod of things. And because of that, it doesn't really have exactly the same structure as most of the traditional linear NLEs. And so there are ways you have to stop thinking about the old way and kind of re-go, rethink about the new ways of doing things. And audio editing and audio manipulation and the way audio works in Final Cut has been one of the areas I think that has tripped up a lot of people. Um, First and foremost, it is not a track-based system. It's a magnetic system. It uses embedded audio inside the original clips and leaves it embedded unless you specifically disembed it. And that means you have a whole bunch of different rules. Some things, like is my audio in sync, are trivial if you're just using the imported clips because it's going to stay in sync. Never going to get out of sync. You can't get it out of sync unless you split it apart and move it out of sync. But there are other things ideas like roles and things like that. And there are the lack of things, like there is no traditional analog style mixer in there. So you have to mix your audio differently using these new ideas. So all I can say to you really is that just get yourself in there, get in some of the, the groups. There are plenty of Final Cut groups out there and they talk robustly about how it actually works versus how a new editor coming to the program thinks it probably should work based on all their real experience. If you let it be itself and you learn it the way it is, it is an incredibly fast and incredibly powerful tool. If you force it to work the way you're used to working, it's going to drive you crazy. That's my two cents. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. He says, Ubiquity has started marketing an EV charger. What does the panel think? And he's got a link to it there. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, this is not new. And um, it's something that they've been playing around for with for quite a while. Um, it's early access. So be sure you read what early access means for Ubiquity. It means they could discontinue it. The warranty is different. And, um, you know, it's an interesting idea. Really, this is a kind of a, um, a catch-all for... Um, the rollout of their um, identity app. So make sure that, you know, if you're even going to play with this at a workplace, which is really what it's for, um, yeah, be careful. 
Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What do you think of the office hours Black Friday of the office hours Black Friday deal where your question gets answered within five minutes? Oh, a little <laughs> and a little now, buy position thing here. And and now 30 percent off. You know, so, so we, we're cutting your in fact. In fact, today, because it's Black Friday, we're going to charge you with 90 percent off, 90 percent off. But uh, a two minutes faster, you know, five bucks. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Very very good, Roscoe. Uh, thanks, thanks to the panel uh, to uh, for for being here and have we had a great panel today. Great discussion as always. I'm I'm always trying to explain to someone like how that works. I was like, yeah, they're like, well, how do you schedule the panelists? I'm like, we turn it on, <laughs> and, and they're like, <laughs> and they're like, and he's like, but how do you know who's going to show up? I was like, we don't. <laughs> Like, you know, it's, and, 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 and it goes, and how many times have you done this? And I was like, ah, like 12 years? or 1200 times or something like that. And he's like, every day. I don't, I don't understand. So anyway, thanks to the panelists for, for being here and being part of this conversation and uh, given, uh, serving everyone with some, some, some new knowledge. And thanks to the, to the uh, producers for asking those questions every single day. Um, I do find, I have to admit, I do find these, these two hours of Q&A very relaxing and just fun to be part of. So thanks for making sure that we actually have the questions to answer because this is a really short show without you. So, um, so thanks to the producers for that and the great discussion um, in, in the panel as well or in, the, uh, in, in our chat. And, uh, and thanks to the incredible team on a Friday, on Black Friday, on Thanksgiving, on Christmas, on all the other things that, that show up uh, 20, you know, uh, seven days a week um, available uh, for us to uh, make sure that the show actually happens. We will break down how the show happens because I think we really want to talk about all the different people that are required. You see, you see this big list of people that's required. There are people who are obviously cutting the show, but there's also people who are managing the show. What are we going to do next? There are people who are um, developing all the tools and making sure this all works. And so we really appreciate everybody's effort. We traveled 102,000 miles today. That's 164,000 miles or 164,000 kilometers, 100, that's 102,000 miles. And that is 809 million, million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Kind of not crushing the blacks in my screen chair. I pulled up that. I had that working like two pictures ago. And then I, when, I, when I flipped my, my rig, it went back. It and I was like, oh, I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. Yeah, but I think once I get the LUT, once I get the ICC into a LUT, and then when they take it into, then I can fine tune it. My uh, quad link display, that, that 4K TV with the four up, I actually had yeah. to do it four times and then a separate time for each input when it's full right. because it's a completely different display. Sure. All right. Everybody have fun. Don't buy too many things. <laughs>